We are horror nerds that weave in and out of your nerdy consciousness like a bad nostalgic dream you can't wake from. That's right. This is the Nerds of Your Nightmare podcast, where we combine the nerds of nostalgia along with Nightmare Junkhead to bring you a very special episode. And I do mean special. And you know what? It's October. Oh, the best time. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Which means, technically, it's now socially acceptable to talk about horror in polite company. <laughs> right. All the fucking time. It's man. wonderful. There's no better time of the year than that. And we're going to be talking about our favorite horror franchises for the next month. The big ones. The big, the Mount Rushmore of horror. The big four, if you will. Yeah. You know, Thrash has their big four. Horror has their big throat four. And we're talking a Halloween. Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, absolutely, in all of their glory. And mm-hmm. we're going to be kicking off our Rocktober, Shocktober, whatever you want to yeah. call it, uh, with the granddaddy of all horror series. Nerdtober. Nerdtober. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And while you're hearing him, let me introduce you. Uh, he is our co-host. He is the Laurie Strode to my Ben Tramer. He is the <laughs> Minister of Sinister. He is the one and only Genius McGee. Genius. Hey, what's going on, man? Not a lot, man. Uh, I'm glad to be here, man. I'm glad to be back as well. I have yeah. been under the weather the yeah. past week, and it has not been And it seems good. it seems weird. Like, even if we miss one or two weeks of recording, I'm like, well, I want to record again. <laughs> when you get in that, that rhythm and routine, <laughs> yeah, man, you, right? know, you just can't shake it off. Uh, but I did mention that we're because of the complexity of these episodes, we're mm-hmm. definitely bringing in the big guns, if you will. Yeah, this is this too much horror for just two nerds to handle ourselves. Absolutely. So, in this case, we are bringing in some special guests to talk all the good stuff with us and holy moly i am bringing it we are bringing in a veritable heavyweight when it comes to halloween knowledge you guys uh you have read our upcoming guest work in horror hound uh famous monsters and freaking fangoria man <laughs> big you, fucking time right there. absolutely man. you've seen and heard him in a number of special features and commentary tracks from the scream and shout factory uh discs and if you're a fan of our our, our podcast you li- you, you yeah. seek all of those out uh he is the writer and director of the short you can't kill the boogeyman welcome to the podcast for the first time resident halloween expert mr justin beam justin Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Thank you for oh, taking dude, time yeah, out. Man, thanks. Appreciate it. But so before we get into anything major, uh, tell our listeners where they can find you out on the social media. Um, it's just my name on Facebook and on Twitter. So it's Justin. Then my last name is B E A H M. So Facebook.com slash Justin Beam. And the same thing on Twitter. And those are really the only two that I'm really involved with. But I'm pretty active on both of them. So yeah, track me down, friend me, and. They're, they're going to have people stalking you like the shape. They're just going to be coming out like behind the bushes. <laughs> I love it. I love, I've been even since I uh, since my relationship with the franchise and ended in sort of an official capacity uh, a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago. I still hear from Halloween fans all the time, and I absolutely love it. I love it. I, I get friended almost daily from more people, and everyone just loves. To discuss this franchise and there's so much to discuss the mm-hmm. mythos is huge and wandering and completely bizarre in some cases <laughs> there's so much to talk about and i think that 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 the expansiveness of halloween and the halloween world is a big part of why people keep talking about it nonstop. i mean it's just amazing so i welcome everyone to come find me please do so you mentioned you did you have like a messy divorce from that or something? What's going on with that? You mentioned you've kind of had a little. Is it a trial by separation? Is it Rob Zombie's fault? Because I blame Rob Zombie. 
absolutely no. Rob's great. No, it, it, um, I was a vice president of marketing and new media for Trankus Films, which is the parent company of the Halloween franchise, and did a lot of stuff for them, including you know merchandise design and managing different things like uh, the website and uh, media and working with different vendors and all kinds of stuff at, in terms of distribution and video releases. I was in charge of all that. Um, I put Halloween back in theaters mm. along with my partner Malik a couple of years ago for the first time in a long time and got it the widest release it's ever had theatrically. And before that is the You Can't Kill the Boogeyman was the documentary short that ran before that in theaters. Nice. And so, um, yeah, I was really, really involved. Happy to explore that further if you'd like to. But at the end, it's just creatively, I, you know, we both just sort of went in different directions. And uh, he's still a, he's a great guy, good friend. And, you know, the relationship is fantastic. But just headed a different direction. Just ships of the night, man. Yeah. I can understand that. I can understand. So, how did you get your start? Um, and this, because like I mentioned, you've you've been published in many magazines and publications. How did you get your start writing like that? I even even back when I was in high school, I was doing my own school paper, which I got in trouble for quite a few times. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, even before that, I, I remember going to going to camp. I was part of a group called Indian Guides to the YMCA, and I remember going to those the campouts there, and I wrote this series of stories called The Midnight Massacre. <laughs> when I was a kid. This, is like, this is like you know fifth grade or something like that, and I was and I had a new entry that, I, and I would hand write out a bunch of different copies of it and sell kids at school, like you know for twenty five cents or whatever. Oh, the new ones out, the new ones out, and at camp I would be reading these stories to the kids and freaking them out, and I've just always been really into storytelling and writing and that led to I've been an editor for assistant editor for a newspaper written for some music magazines um, and then ultimately found my way into the film magazines and a lot of that it started with Fangoria and then it blossomed from there and I I feel really grateful to have had all the opportunities that I have because it's not an easy business for anyone not just freelance writers. I mean, the guys behind the scenes editing, uh, managing editors on these things, the publishers, it's a tough business. And they don't take risks casually. And for them to have given anyone a shot to do this is incredible. And for me, getting into three of you know the big four magazines is an absolute honor and mm-hmm. something that proves that there really aren't dividers between them we are all in the horror community one big family and the fact that i can be published i mean there was one month where i was in all three magazines on the, on the newsstand at the same time that's which awesome. is crazy how surreal so, was that oh it's absolutely incredible it every time an issue came out with anything in it i sprinted so eagerly to because <laughs> i got a golden ticket i got a golden ridiculous going up buying three copies i never said anything i was never like well i'm gonna i'm gonna buy these because i'm in it right like that it was just like i enjoyed the anonymity of walking up and just purchasing a magazine like i would buy all my life from barnes and noble or whatever the newsstand was just knowing that i was in it and then sitting and looking at it obsessively for (laughs) hours on end so happy that I'm in those pages. It's a it's a real honor, and it's been one hell of an adventure. Very I can imagine. Did you grow up reading uh, like Fangoria? I did. Yeah. It, well, it was it was contraband. 
my parents my parents were supportive of my horror leanings. They never really stopped me from getting into that stuff. Uh, but the Fangoria magazine was a bit out there for mm-hmm. for kid. But I, but I had this really hip friend Matt Bortz, who was a school buddy of mine. His parents let him subscribe to it, and so he would bring him into school for me, pass him <laughs> to me in like study hall. And then I'd be looking at it, and it's just like in the movies where you see someone with their textbook up, and behind it is like Playboy or something. <laughs> it was it was always Fango, and and so Matt was my was my enabler and my dealer, and became my best friend instantly. And also coincidentally, he's the reason why I saw my the the first Halloween film that I ever saw was with Matt, and I can tell that story when we get to it. But oh, so he was Fango your he is, was your man, gateway. Oh God, That's the Fangoria is the hallowed halls. That is the, still the absolute Bible yeah. of of genre publishing. And man, the first day I got in that magazine, oh Jesus, amazing, Speak. so amazing, pinch me. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you wish for. Uh, zobbled a bit. But uh, speaking of Fangoria, I got a little funny story. And when I was in uh, middle school, we had in shop class, we had to make a clock. And we could decorate the clock any way we wanted to. Then, like the guy was like, "Here's a bunch of magazines. You can cut them out." I went home and I cut up some uh, pictures out of Fangoria, and I put it on my clock. And I turned it in, and he gave me an F because it was too bloody and gory. And he says, nah, "You can't be putting all this Satanism shit on here. There's decapitated heads and stuff." And I'm like, "You said I could put anything I wanted on there, so I put Fangoria stuff on there." And so. Yeah, it was it was it was gnarly. It really was kind of that just that just nasty. It was it was the litmus test for a lot of people. Like you like Fangoria? Oh shit, you can hang with me then. Mm-hmm. You know, and especially someone that had like back issues. Oh, that was a treasure trove. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, and the, it it was an education in a really unique way because. I know people, some people compare all this stuff, the uninitiated, the sort of uneducated, <laughs> I guess you could say, consider this stuff akin to like pornography, for example. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it really isn't. Pornography is a very passive experience. It's, um, you know, it's, it's something that you dial into when, when you have a need and then you dial back out and then you leave it there. You don't remember it afterwards. But the great thing about this magazine is that, and this is also the great thing about horror fans and large, is that they are as into the mechanics of the process as they are into what ends up on film. And I think Fangoria needs a tip of the hat in that regard because they turn guys who are technicians into rock stars. Yeah. Like, it, with, without Fangoria, Tom Savini, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. he's like the Elvis Presley of effects guys. And the reason why, everyone knows who he is. Yeah, he's worked on some high-profile stuff. He's a a fantastic talent but there was no voice for these guys until this magazine came along and that's what did it and then that led to Weekend of Horrors which invented the horror convention which furthered the horror community I mean all of it all roads lead back to Fangoria and it's for a lot of reasons but I think that horror fans getting into the why and how is what makes this this segment of fandom so unique and so fucking beautiful just because we love all aspects of what we're into yeah we're rabid we don't don't just it's not just about who the star is and then what are they wearing today it's about knowing how the blood how the arrow went through the neck and sleep boy can't yeah who are they killing and how do they do it 
Well, if you think about like traditionally, or I should say more stereotypically, you know, if you ask the common man, you know, what a horror nerd is, you know, they have these horrible descriptions, just antisocial, this or that, but it's just the the furthest thing from the truth. Mm -hmm. And just this last year, I finally attended my first horror convention. And it was just, I was telling Genius here, it was just like the intimacy was amazing. Um, and just yeah. the sense of community. And every, it was just one of us just coming here, <laughs> hang out. Gobble. It was, it was amazing. It was just such a great experience. But, you know, you, you talked about like the technicians and the behind the scenes thing. And that's where, uh, Nerds and Nostalgia comes from, where, you know, we, I love and I just, just ingest all the behind the scenes footage that I can because I love seeing how it works and that's the thing like you said with horror is you wanted to know almost like a magician's trick how the hell did you do that Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah and you know I remember the great thing is well and and the big difference here that's a great analogy to draw but the big difference in horror all these all the magicians love showing their hands (laughs) they do there's no there's no curtain there really isn't, and, and now more than ever. And I think that the advent of LaserDisc <laughs> opened the gates to special features and behind-the-scenes stuff be, being more... I mean, you know, Charlie Band was doing it on his Full Moon releases for a long on time. On the old VHS, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'd watch the movie, and then how great was it that you knew it wasn't over? Actually, okay, you've experienced the movie. And he got it to the point where he put that after the film. Because he's like, of course you need to watch the movie first to appreciate what you're going to learn next full moon video I, magazine I thought, oh yeah man and that, that was one of band's greatest master strokes was doing that but the advent i mean it was really laser disc that brought this into its own and spoiled started to spoil us and mm-hmm. a lot of the early dvds were just ported over special features from these laser discs mm-hmm. but that's what lended legitimacy to this whole thing and it took what we had been reading about first in black and white in magazines like famous monsters rather childishly but still fun and then through the evolution to Fangoria, then the bloody splatter of Gorezone, Deep Red Magazine, Slaughterhouse, Rumorg, which is a cultural Rumorg. magazine as well, all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And now we're in the absolute golden age of how do they do it and show me as much as you've got. And where we used to pour over every single article looking for any rare photo from a movie, now Every Blu-ray that comes out is a treasure trove. It's absolutely incredible. It's that's, incredible. That's why I get really get upset when they release these bare-bones releases, because you know eventually down the line they're going to put out something good, but they're just trying to almost oversaturate you. Like, how many Evil Dead editions have been put out? It's it's obnoxious how many yeah. times they you know put, like... And then they'll add, well, here's another three-minute deleted scene you never saw. It's like, come on. Here's the Boomstick edition, the Screwhead edition, the Ultimate edition, the Director's Cut. Yeah. The- well, there's a number of things to keep in mind on that front. And I have produced a number of Blu-rays. It's not just special features, but like straight through A to Z on like body bags, on um, a couple other releases yeah. and stuff too. Rad. But you, uh, the Halloween stuff, for example, and Sleepaway Camps, the, the first one mm-hmm. And it's not as simple as we have this toy box full of awesome shit. We're going to be selective and pull a few things out here and there. And then we're going to make you pay for more down the road. It's not as simple as that. No, no, I'm, really yeah. don't do that. I'm just but, cynical that way. Suggesting that. <laughs> I, know, well, I know, a lot of fans feel that way. And I, The Evil Dead is the classic example. It is the most released film and film franchise probably in history. I mean, I'm like, Halloween's got to be second close, the original. Oh, Halloween. yeah, the original. But you're thinking about evolution and technology, so, you know, higher definition scans, 
the audio, they might find a, because finding the, the materials on these isn't easy, especially the older the film is or the more independent it is. So Sleepaway Camp was a great challenge because it was housed in a bunch of different places under a bunch of different names for the produce, production company who had made it. And so it took me a couple of weeks to f eventually find the materials for it. And when I got the list, like, uh, it was, it was mind-blowing because it was all the original elements. It was everything. And that was sound, video, everything that came out of the camera was essentially at our disposal. So the Scream Factory release of Sleepaway Camp that's available is not only the most, it is an uncut, you could say, version of the film. It's also the most thorough version of the film. And like, I mean, there are moments in there that no one's ever seen before. So digging this stuff up is not easy, but when you find it, man, it's, when you're when you're with a company like in that case Screen Factory who pulls out all the stops. I mean, whatever they can do to make every release as quality as possible, the sky's the limit. And it's all about delivering what the fans want in that scenario. So But my yes, question Evil Dead go ahead, sir. Oh sorry. My question is why would the producers um hide everything like put, put it under false names like blue harvest or something why you know why why was it so like uh do they not want things to see the light of day was it just kind of a forgotten thing well, a lot of things a lot of times you find that this stuff is just mishandled and it's not intentional neglect it's not so much someone trying to hide it like alan smithy presents mm -hmm. it's more like the person who is in charge of storing materials was on their last day of the production and may have been bothered about something and just filed it away when they delivered it. Yes, yeah, I think this is the name of the company. Put it under this. Or what? I mean, there's a number of different scenarios that can play out that lead to these things ending up in weird places. Tom and Matthews and James Caron. A, a lot of it's been destroyed, too, especially on a lot of independent films. I mean, this stuff doesn't last forever. It's, there's a, you really have to take special care of celluloid. And, and when you're... And that's the thing to remember is not everyone that works within the field are fans. You know, for some of these people, it's just a nine to five job and they're not going to put the passion. But you mentioned the, 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 the fan service that Shout and Scream Factory really puts into the releases. And they are like clockwork when they put out a horror release or an action or sci-fi. I'm all over yeah, that. Yeah, it's good shit. It's always good shit. Second to none. Yeah, it's I mean, really. I, and, and I've worked with other companies and what I'll say is that no one touches what Cliff and uh, Greg and everybody at Shout and Scream Factory, man. And that goes way back to when they were releasing Frank Zappa's catalog. <laughs> back when they were doing, oh, I mean, they were the first ones to really, as Shout Factory, really get into the re-releasing television shows yep. on DVD, things like that. They, they get fandom. They're more than just a business entity. And they aren't owned by some massive conglomerate. They're their own thing. And that's part of what allows them to have the freedom that they do to do what they do. I mean, who else is going to release, like, Debbie Blessing? <laughs> or, or, or Death Valley? I mean, a lot of the stuff that they're doing is just like, most companies wouldn't even touch it. But they're like, yeah, we'll give that a shot. And that was the thing when I, because I've been, you guys know the film Body Bags as Carpenter fans. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, okay. So... John and I had talked for a couple of years on and off about body bags had come up several times in conversation about, and, and he was always really unhappy with how Showtime had handled that release. Not just with the way it was presented on TV, because they trimmed it without him knowing, but also 
in, in the way that it was marketed, released on video. He had no say in the cover. He was always very upset about that, hmm. and it just wasn't. And, and there was cropped. It, it was not a, a, the way he wanted it to be. And he had been approached by other entities about releasing it, but never felt the deal was right. And after I started doing more work with with Screen Factory and Shout Factory, and I was really convinced, totally sold. After working on a couple of releases like Prince of Darkness and a couple other things, I was like, you know, these guys, they're, they're legit. And if there's anyone who I can sell this to, sell this to John, that they could do this, that they will give it the respect that it deserves, it'd be them. Plus, at the time, they were in the midst of this sort of carpenter blitz of releasing as much of his stuff as they can get their hands on. Mm -hmm. And in addition to I mean, so many other great horror titles. Right, and right. So finally, finally selling Carpenter John on this thing. And I, I go to, well, I first pitched it to Cliff I, at Scream Factory. I'm like, would you guys be game? He's like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't an easy sell even then at that point. It wasn't just a no-brainer for the company to go, well, yeah, sure. I mean, he had to run it through the channels and then it had to get approved. And then from there... And it's on to, okay, now that I know that they're cool with it, let me go talk to John. And that was a bit of a process, and we ended up making it all happen. But, you know, no one else wanted to, to work for this movie. And working for the film is different than releasing the film. And I think that there are companies who just vomit stuff out on disc and don't put any thought or time into it. And then there are companies like Screen Factory who who get it yeah, and just, they're giving you their all yeah, yeah everything is just so well crafted put together just and you the, can tell the love yeah uh -huh. just the fact that they have alternate covers they you know do those custom just wonderful covers and then they do the little yeah. flip side where you can have the original artwork as well i love that mm -hmm. just the little because those, yeah that's the show that we knew when we were kids we walked exactly the stores and, and they were art galleries for us yeah yes. looking around i mean that's like that's like changing the Mona Lisa's face. And yeah, it's cool. You can do art. There's plenty of people who have done really cool, interesting variations on that painting, but nothing beats the original. And a lot of people just want the original. And not everybody wants a rehashed, reconfigured cover. That's one battle I had to fight with Halloween 4 and 5 on Blu-ray. It was about the cover art, which we can get into when we touch on those sequels if you want to. But Scream Factory's reversible covers are just one piece of that testament that they, they're they're the head of the head of the class right now absolutely so, absolutely well i'm glad you went into a little depth on that i love that in fact we're both just sitting there going damn yeah like, we're just kind of in awe right now i knew man. you had your feelers out and all that that world but it's like you know you just casually mentioned <laughs> yeah i just called john. up john carpenter and says hey man <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely well speaking of john carpenter old jc himself let's go let's start delving into the franchise itself of halloween um i can say from experience Halloween really hits the nostalgia field for me because this is, I can really pinpoint, I remember this is the first horror film I ever saw, and it wasn't one of those that I saw from front to end. I literally walked in on my family watching it right when uh, The Shape, uh, get that great little shot where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is in the doorway, and he's in the background, he's laying down, and he just sits up and then looks over, and I walked in the room right when that happened, and just just burned that image into my mind. And this is a film that to this day still 
scares me. Yeah, every now and then I'll fuck with him by putting the Halloween music on when it's like dark in here or something. That it's not right. But uh Halloween came out in nineteen seventy eight, directed by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. We'll let the guest go first here. Um um what you in terms of kind of your first experience with everything, uh Justin, what was your kind of your intro to Halloween? My intro to Halloween was actually Halloween two. Ah. And this ties and this ties back to my buddy I don't want to jump over one, but we'll get back to that. Oh no, we just tie in here that 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 my buddy Matt, who I told you about, the Fangoria kid, and we went trick or treating one week one year and I remember I was dressed as Sid Vicious. <laughs> and, and the reason I remember it is because of the leather jacket I had on and the hairspray was so like smelly. Like he was killing me all night. Anyway, we're going trick or treating, and he's like, you get, "We got to get back here. We got to get back here." And he was my professor in horror when I was a kid. I had my own early explorations when I was getting into the early like uh, Universal monsters and all that. I was glued to the Crestwood House books when I was a little kid from the library. You know, Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Dracula, Wolfman, all those books. But Matt is the one who sort of pushed me into the next level. And on this night, which I think was in fifth grade, fourth grade. We were trick-or-treating, and we were, like, rushing to get back because he's like, Halloween 2 is his favorite movie. And he's like, it's going to be on TV. we got to watch it. And so we rushed back, and I had never seen a Halloween movie before, and I was just starting to get my feet wet with stuff outside of just black-and-white classics. And we sit down, smelly hairspray, <laughs> bag full of candy sitting in front of me. I know my dad's going to be there in, like, 45 minutes. It starts to roll. The pumpkin. Oh. The music. Skull, the whole thing, and I was in awe, and uh, hadn't seen the first one yet. So you know, chronologically, who cares? But when you're that age, who cares? Oh yeah, and no, you don't need to worry about that. Not at all, no. And it, it kicked me in the ass, and I had nightmares for days. <laughs> and so then I had my buddy Al, who was my sort of partner exploring music. I have all these really cool people that I've been associated with over time. Uh, I mean, just so grateful for all of them to be in my life. And Al is this guy who was into all kinds of cool music and stuff. And he had a brother who collected comics. And he also was a big soundtrack nut. So, not to get, this is not a side road, believe it or not. No, we're good on tangents here. uh, Al's brother had the soundtrack cassette for Halloween, the score. The first film, which I hadn't seen yet. He also had the novelization for it. Oh, man. So I went over there. Yeah, and we snuck that out. I'm like, guy, please, please borrow this stuff. He's like, oh, oh. <laughs> just be nice to it. And so I took him, and so I'm sitting in my bedroom at night with the tape, the cassette playing, oh, reading dude. the novelization, and just completely immersed in the whole thing. Hadn't seen the film yet. Oh, so my man. My introduction to Halloween technically was to the novelization with the soundtrack playing. That's... That is oh, frightening. God. I'm, even, I'm even fucking getting like nightmares on that shit, dude. That's... Wow. Just uh, I could, it Was it like a dark and stormy night, too? <laughs> it, it, it was all the things that it should be. I mean, you couldn't set the... And you know what? That really sort of was the blueprint for how I enjoy reading and film now it's so moody and so emotional for me like i need to be in touch with i love watching movies within the season that they're set so i love winter movies in winter i love fall movies in fall so on and so forth and a lot of it ties back to that time and i'll never forget that day it was a saturday and i spent the entire afternoon sitting there reading this book flipping the cassette 
losing myself and then having <laughs> nightmares for days. I had such an overactive imagination and it drove me nuts at night. But that was my introduction to Halloween. And eventually, I rented the video and then I got to see the real deal. Yeah, now, and do you remember how you saw it? Because you kind of did, you know, reverse chronologically here going from two to one. Was there certain expectations that you were anticipating or was it just, just again, just kind of washed over you and you're like, wow. In terms of the film to the book? Uh, Well, actually, yeah, actually, I'm kind of curious because I always read novelizations too. I remember reading the Batman novelization, the license to drive novelization I actually read. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if that's anything to brag about. Um, I have the Jessica Lange King Kong one. (laughs) That's pretty good too. (laughs) Well, you mentioned... the biggest crush on Mercedes Lane and license drive she was like oh oh mercedes lane fuck yeah man and the bum was the best part where he's like singing that's life frank sinatra and like maserati with keys yeah (laughs) fucking license to drive man that was uh the corys yeah no and who was uh mercedes that was uh heather graham heather graham Mm -hmm. looking looking fine like wine man fine like wine Mm-hmm. Yeah, forget. Oh, yeah. When you introduce feathered hair or anything like that, I'm just like, just like Pavlovian responses. Yeah. Like, <laughs> my poor wife just doesn't understand that. <laughs> well, Come you, on, just tease the hair a little bit, baby. <laughs> just tease the hair. You mentioned the score. You listened to the soundtrack on tape, and that's the one thing. <laughs> that's with, Greg's kryptonite, man. Well, I th- I've got the soundtrack on vinyl. I'm a big vinyl head, um, and I can't listen to it. I want to, <laughs> but it's so permanently etched in my mind because it's so yeah. frightening. Yeah, it's a perfect score, man. And the fact that John Carpenter composed it was just added to that element of why John Carpenter is so badass. Mm-hmm. He was very much a renaissance man. So, um, genius. That's why he stands head and shoulders above so many other guys in a lot of fans' eyes is because he's a complete package. He is. He's, he's a true auteur. He is. There's a lot. And, well, and he's, he sees and hears it all as he's doing it so it's that's one of the most amazing things about him and on the fact that it's also really good because you can get anyone out there direct write compose and it's going to be shit but his just works so well and just i mentioned it in our um previous john carpenter episodes how his music basically becomes another character Mm -hmm. in the film because if you were to watch halloween without the music i don't know if it would be as effective that's very true and there's a test screening of it before it before there was any score applied to it, and they're watching it going, this is dull, this is, this is lifeless. And then the second screening had the score, and all the, everyone's like, holy shit. <laughs> but you're right, I mean, he's, and the, one of the magical things about him is that his musical voice is as distinct as his cinema, as like his eye, as, as what he put, you know, puts on camera. Yeah. So when you hear, now it's to the point where people hear something like, the score for Maniac, the remake of Maniac, mm-hmm. and they're not, and they're not saying, "What a beautiful whatever." Which that's like one of my favorite scores now, especially in recent history. But now of all time, I just really adore that score. But now they say it's it's a lot like John Carpenter. There's... Or when you, and it's the same thing in cinema. When you when you see these great wide shots, and you're like, that's like when Carpenter and Dean Cundey were working together. Yeah, they just shared a brain. Yeah. That's, and, and, and they did things that, I mean, it, it was a complete unit. So you know a Carpenter and a Cundy shot. You know a Carpenter score when you hear it, and you realize how that bled down onto every single thing that came after it. Especially recently, because we've, um, we've talked, especially in our Carpenter episodes, about some of the newer horror movies that 
have that, like you said, very Carpenter-esque feel when it comes to the score and the shots. For example, the one that comes to mind is The Guest. Which is one of those that I kind of adored for a while. Um, well, Genius, uh, we, Justin and I have talked about our first intro to Halloween, but what was your intro to Halloween? <laughs> so I was maybe about seven years old, and we went. me and my mom went to Blockbuster, right? And it was close to Halloween time. And I was like, hey, I want to get a spooky movie because it's Halloween time. She's like, okay, sure. Let's let's find a, a little horror movie. You know, let's make sure it's not too scary. And I'm like, Wurr. right? And there it fucking was, right there. The knife, the pumpkin, the whole thing. just And the tile just screamed Halloween. I'm like, I want that one. I'm like, do you think it's going to be too scary? And I was like, yeah. okay, cool. Popped it like, fucker, what a movie. It definitely is ahead and start us up so. so so it was halloween time and i was maybe about seven years old and uh i wanted to get a horror movie for because it was fucking halloween time and so we went to the blockbuster and i was looking for something i'm like ah, i've already seen that movie and, I, and my mom was like make sure it's not too scary i'm like okay cool you know because i'm seven right and i see it the cover art Everything, the whole, the pumpkin, the knife, the whole thing, even the things at Halloween. I'm like, this is what I need to see because it's Halloween time. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to make dinner. You can watch your movie. And like, so I'm sitting there like, motherfucker, just like, just eating it up with a spoon, getting scared, but loving it. Just the whole atmospheric tone to it. Just, just everything. It's like almost the perfect horror movie. And it sums up a good Halloween story. Yeah. They're the atmosphere that he creates. And uh, Justin, you mentioned just kind of, I think is the secret weapon for a good John Carpenter film. And that is Dean Cundy. He is, I think just the kind of the unsung hero when it comes to what makes a good John Carpenter movie. And man. Buck Flowers. And Buck. Yeah, of course. Buck and Flowers. Man. Buck Flowers. <laughs> he always works well, but that's later Carpenter later. Buck Flowers and Cheerleader Camp is so great. Have you seen Cheerleader Camp? That's, no, I don't think I haven't seen Cheerleader Camp. Oh my god, it's so great. It's okay. got Leaf, what's it, Leaf Garrett, Leaf. <laughs> anyway, it's this uh, Camp Slasher movie and Buck Flowers in it. He's like, of course, the hillbilly caretaker kind of guy. And he has, he's just such a cartoon in that movie. I love Buck Flowers. It's got a blood curse! <laughs> <laughs> He is wonderful, and he became kind of one of those carpenter in the in his stable. Yeah, yeah, his stable of characters. Well, actually, the stable of characters kind of starts here um, regarding just a lot of the people that he worked with, because here we have Jamie Lee Curtis in her first starring role, just knocking it out of the park as mm-hmm. Laurie Strode. And I think that's what really makes this film work is the believability of the characters. And they talked about how Deborah Hill was able to, and it's kind of funny now looking back at it, but write like a teenager would talk, as they said back in the day, which is why. Totally. Yes. That was part of a drinking game. We just recently watched Halloween, and one of the drinking games was every time uh, PJ said, totally, you took a drink. (laughs) Or somebody talks about Paul. Yeah, oh, Paul. Oh, Paul. (laughs) But that's one of the things that really works for me in terms of this Halloween versus the ones we get later in the series is just the atmosphere. It's a very menacing film. Little gore. I don't think there's any blood spilled in the first one. It's yeah, it's like no, I don't yeah, think there I'm is. Thinking, yeah. So you know, it's very it's very subdued, it's subtle. It's just it's a great it movie. It just works. If you if you if you if you divorce it from being a horror movie, this is something you can take to to film snobs and say this is a real film. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't just a movie. Take this Tribeca. <laughs> 
put this on your Criterion edition here. So yeah, it's it's one of those films that to me and watching it recently here this just the last week I was telling uh, Genius Off Air, it's the first time I really saw it as an older film. You know, viewing it as it came out in 1978, and I know we were watching it with people that were seeing it for the first time, and I realized immediately, I'm like, oh, I wonder if these people are going to be bored by it, because it is slow-paced, it's very methodical, but that's what I think adds to it, which is they just just create this believable world, because you can put yourself in any one of their shoes, and that's what freaks me out is the randomness. And you know what, because Michael Myers itself is slow-paced and methodical. Yes, yes. (laughs) and... So much to the point that he's not even technically Michael Myers. He's credited as the, the shape, shape. Yeah. which is one of those little things that you don't really pick up on until later. And you go like, oh, he's the shape. He just takes up yeah, space. M- Michael Myers is a kid. But right, right. When, once he was an adult. Yeah. And the, the, I think you hit something really important that this film is relatable because it exists where we exist. Oh, yeah. It's a film. It's made for suburban people, suburban kids. And it takes the because you know, home has always been sacred. It's home is home, home base. Are, home is home base. Home is where you feel secure. It's where all your stuff is. It's where your family moments happen. All this stuff. It's the idea that the evil can make its way into that. That oh. you don't have to. You know, like in Jaws, you have to go in the water to get mm-hmm. in trouble. And you, you know, all these other movies, you have to like find the the. the the creature, the demon, the whatever it might be. But when it just enters your space and violates that, that is something that doesn't necessitate a bunch of gore and over-the-top effects to help you understand that this is very real and to touch a nerve within you because also how many kids have been at home alone at night, whether you're babysitting or not, mom and dad are out having dinner with their friends or something, and you hear something outside. I mean, it's universal. It's universally horrifying yeah he really he really played to that universal theme of just pure terror of the unknown and again the randomness of it is what's kind of the freakiest thing but one of the things that really works for me though is just those establishing shots of the shape where they're far away and again this is where dean cundy comes to play but there's that distinctness of the white mask just the black uh jumper that he's wearing yeah and it's just so contrasting but it's Just hiding behind a bush or driving a car. We have a huge window in our main living room. And my main fear every time I look out there (laughs) is one of these days across the street, the shape is just going to be staring back at me. And and he'll have been waiting. Oh, forget it. Oh, speed kills jerk. And oh, now it's <laughs> bad things will definitely happen. Uh, to this day, I still have nightmares and my nightmares are of Michael Myers and that score. And that's the thing. This is a damn near 78, uh, 88, 98, damn near 30 some odd years. This this movie is and it's still as effective as it is as any other horror film out today. You know, I'll have it go toe to toe with anything. Mm-hmm. But it's just one of those that ah, just so much works about it. Um what other, because I want to make sure we're getting all, because we've got a lot of films to cover here. Uh, anything, any other words on the original Halloween? Well, I think that it's worth discussing just a little bit about what makes Michael Myers work. <laughs> and it's more than just his, that slow, methodical approach. The randomness, I think, has a lot to do with it, which we can get into that discussion when we start talking about what was set up in part two and couldn't be abandoned for the rest of the franchise. <laughs> but the idea of a guy who has no apparent direct motives. Oh, yeah. And and who is willing to exist in daylight, not just in the shadows. Yeah, he, I mean, he's a thing of... When I recut... 
when I cut a trailer for the re-release of Halloween in theaters, I got to, I mean, like, build that with the editor from the ground up. And the heart of that trailer, what, what the key scene for me was the moment where Laurie's, Michael's already in the house, Laurie's leaning up against the closet, and in the background you see Michael emerge from the darkness. Oh, the white, oh, good God. Yeah, and that, because that scene, that says everything about the film. It's, it's him in this environment that you so trust. It's her not knowing what the hell to do, not knowing if she wants to run or if she wants to stay. And, it's, and it's, it's him as the darkness, as the shape, but completely unafraid to emerge from that. And then when you, in, in, with the film, he's, he is in daylight. He's standing outside the school. He's following me. He's walking along the fence of the playground. And he's not afraid to approach adults or kids. Yeah. It, yeah, so he's all these things. And I think that mask is just like in Friday the 13th, after they introduced that in part three, that it is, that is a, a brilliant move because it's not just because it's something that's easily iconic, easy to remember, but in this case, even more than Jason's mask, even more than Freddy's gloves, these iconic symbols of horror, Michael's mask being so vacant, mm-hmm. I just... think that people, it, it almost it almost begs the audience to sort of project their fears onto it. Whose face do you see in this guy? Who, who in your youth were you terrified of, or what were you afraid of happening? Now, here is the chalkboard, but it's alive. Yeah, it's and that tabula rasa thing. Just totally blank slate. Yeah, no, it's frightening. God bless William Shatner. Right. <laughs> and the fact, and that's that's the thing that always has bothered me with the remainder of the films is they, I don't think they ever got the mask the way they did that first film. You know, that one is the one that's still, is the one I still see in my head. But also in terms of the shape and another one of the characters, and God, I would have been remiss if we haven't mentioned this man, but Donald Pleasance is Dr. Loomis, man. Yeah. Just, Just chewing it up and being... Donald Pleasance. Just being Donald Pleasance. (laughs) A number one. (laughs) And he's hardly in the film. No, he. But when he has his. Yeah, when he has his moments, though, you know, when he's fucking around with little. uh, Who is the little kid that he's messing around with? Oh, Lonnie. Right. Better get your ass out of here, Lonnie. (laughs) He's just. He's just. He was. He served as exposition for a lot of the film, Mm -hmm. but because he just has that lovely, just classically trained drawl, it works darkness in the eyes the devil's eyes just so good so good there has to be the element of the of this sort of angel the hero pursuing the villain that has to exist the ahab Ahab. yeah well yeah ahab in in a film that's otherwise populated with people who have no idea why this thing is there and why it's doing what it's doing there has to be the quint who gets it and sits in the back of the room and goes (laughs) (laughs) and one of the things that i we had talked about in um the previous John Carpenter episodes is how he likes to bring two con- two conflicting realities and push them in together. And you have Loomis and the shape conflicting with this ideal suburban little town. And what happens is just mass chaos ensues. And Carpenter has always just been drawn to that. And you see that in a lot of his films. So in many ways, and that's the other thing I love about this film. He was just so confident and, you know, he put his name on it. Yeah. John Carpenter's Halloween. To the point that that became also a trademark. Mm-hmm. You were going to see a John, John Carpenter, Carpenter movie. And yeah. the fact that he just knocked it out of the park with this one. <laughs> he fucking kicked ass. Man. Oh, unfreaking un- real how he that He just worked. came out and goes, I'm John Carpenter, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and just totally put a stamp on it. It was great. Um, but okay, so 
Any other thoughts for Halloween, guys? Justin, are you with many, us? Many, but for running time. Okay, yeah, because we've got a lot of, lot of, lot of episodes. Uh, Blah, a lot of uh, movies to get through. So, uh, Halloween came out in 1978. By that time, we started getting the Friday the 13th. Uh, we already had Black Christmas. We had some of the slashers. And they decided to do a sequel. This came out, Halloween 2 came out in 1981, uh, directed by Rick Rosenthal, and again, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. He wanted no part in directing it, but was like, fine. I'll, and I think the, the, the thing is, he... Because he wanted to do the anthology. Right. But they just put it together really quickly, and they're like, oh, what more can we say? Mm-hmm. And then they hold. This is where you get the mythology yeah. with the shape Michael Myers and Halloween, which for me as a fan is kind of a detriment a little bit. I, I think it worked great in part two. It became a detriment later on. Later on, yeah. So, um, Genius, thoughts mm-hmm. on Halloween 2? I love fucking Halloween 2. I saw this, the first time I saw it was on TV. And it was like Halloween 2 tonight, 7 o'clock, CB, Channel 5, right? I was like, fuck yeah, right? Because I just finished watching Halloween 1, not about a year before. And so... I thought it was fantastic, and like they always say, the 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 um, sequel has to pump up the gore and the kills. And I thought this did great. I thought this was a very well done sequel, and the fact that it could stand toe to toe with the original to me, the whole um, uh, boiling a chick in the spa, oh, yeah. the whole like Lori or the nurse slipping in the puddle of blood, blood from the IV from the I fucking V man. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic, and Loomis finally getting his big kill, well, from what we thought, um, right, I, I thought it was a beautiful movie, and like, amazing grace, come sit on my face, don't make me cry, give me some of your pie, yeah, that <laughs> that was fantastic. Well, they, they definitely increased the blood, they increased the TNA. Because that's the one thing you did get in Halloween as well, significantly. Almost Although gratuitously. PJ's holes is, is pretty nice, but yeah, but it was more gratuitous in Halloween too, for the most part, because it wasn't necessary. But, they're but they had to, com- yeah, they, they had to compete with the, like you said, Black Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, the Friday the Thirteenth, which is a considerably more gratuitous TNA movie. Well, and, and Justin, you already mentioned it, but just that intro with the skull—that was that's an amazing shot. Just going along with the music, the the the, the pumpkin slowly opening up to reveal this big hideous skull. Yes, that is with just a, yeah, with a synthesized version. Yeah. Well, I think the the intro, the opening sequences for all of these films pretty much are great, and they're all great in their own way. But it really does set the table for you for the rest of the movie. And a lot of that gore stuff was actually shot after they were done with principal photography. They got it and they were editing it together and the mandate came down and they needed more gore. And so they went and reshot some of that stuff. And John's always been a little bit hush-hush on what he did and didn't shoot for the movie. But he was involved with some of the shots that are in the film, too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Huh. I didn't. I see this now. This I know, is, right? Huh. This is really when the good stuff happens. Well, you heard it here first, kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that this really sets up, though, is the fact that it's almost like a bottle episode where practically the entire film is shot in the hospital. And this is also one of the films that really freaked me out. There's a running gag on uh, the podcast where I'm afraid to go in the downtown areas because of street, street toughs. Well, this is the film that kind of freaked me out from hospitals because the way it's shot, yeah, it's I, so desolate. Mm-hmm. Empty, 
foreboding, yeah. I was deathly afraid for the longest times of having to go to a hospital. No, and I, I agree with you on this one. This one fucked me over from hospitals. I hate going to hospitals. And it's one because of visiting hours and because of fucking Halloween, too. And that puts all the sick people. But other than that... <laughs> No, visiting hours. That's the one with Michael Ironside, right? Where he's in the uh, the bondage gear. I'm trying to. There's one of those hospital films. But between this and Cobra, this is just one of those films where I just you know I, you, if you're in the hospital, you're fucked. You know, there's no coming out of it. Right. Um, so you mentioned this was the first one you saw, Justin. How does this one hold up for you? I think it really holds up. And again, we talk about appealing to universal fears. There are a few times in life when you are as vulnerable mm-hmm. as in a hospital. When you're there, you're, if you're overnight there, you know, being there during the day, the procedures, all the medical stuff, that stuff can be scary. But the really terrifying moments, if you've ever had to have a stay at a hospital, is after all the staff basically go home, everyone else is sleeping, and every little sound is magnified by like a thousand. Mm-hmm. And I've had to be in the hospital a couple of times, and I know what that's like. And so this film preys on that. Like, you're there, you've been sedated slightly. They're trying to get you to go to sleep. It's a limited staff. Doors are always open in hospitals. There's no one telling people not to come in because it's a freaking hospital. (laughs) You arguably are in the worst place and had to feel that you could possibly be short of just chilling in a Myers house. Right. And and so for her to be there, a little out of it, because they they put that, when she's getting that shot, she's terrified. Not Mm -hmm. because of the shot, but because she knows, I'm not going to be able to do much here if something goes wrong. And then all the bumbling staff and everything else. And it really, one of the great things about this film is that it plays almost like a silent movie where we talk about the simplicity of Carpenter's score, all of that. It really comes into play and marries perfectly to this film because the long, lingering shots mm-hmm. in the hallways. I mean, you, and there's so little score in it. It's, it's just, you know, sprinkled here and there. A lot of it is just ambient sound. It's footsteps. It's, it's alarms going off, like buzzers. Oh, yeah. The door mm-hmm. opening and clicking shut. It's the background stuff on TV when he's in the house. You know, do you want some, you know, she's making the sandwich and all that. It's background, it's, it, it really immerses you in a very quiet, contemplative environment. And that's someplace that not a lot of horror films anymore take, take people. Lulled into and a false yeah, safety. And that's why I think part two is really special. And it's almost essential viewing for me. If I'm watching part one, I'm also watching part two right after it. Because it's one of the few ones that takes exactly right after the first one. And manages the same feel. Yeah. It's it's impressive. Then you also get, like I mentioned, you get a little bit more of the mythology. You find out now Laurie Strode was his sister. Uh, he he apparently goes into that classroom and writes Sam Hain mm-hmm. on the board. So you're getting a little bit more in depth with the character, which is cool. Which is, and I actually agree with you, genius. I think with this movie, it's good for it because it gives it a little bit more umph. Yeah, but it gets stretched later get on. The, it gets a little wacky when you get to the curse of the thorn. It gets a little little wacky, unfortunately. Um, but this is also one of those films that, for me, is very much. It, and I'm glad you guys mentioned it is kind of essential because it does take up right after. Mm-hmm. And well, I guess Friday the Thirteenth, the films, the first, the first one, two, and three, two. and four are right. kind of back to back to back. But like, but then still, you'd have. Like gaps and years and new people playing right. Jason and you I mean like and not I mean new people as an actors but like a like the whole camp counselor Tommy Jarvis's mm-hmm. shit thing going on with part uh, five but 
it just takes place like, kind of like the Hatchet movies, where it's like exactly beat the next beat is the next movie, and I love shit like that, and yeah. I think that's why, like you said, it has to. You almost have to play those two movies back. You can't just pop in part two and watch it. It's like you almost have to watch part one. Oh, it doesn't feel like a product, right? No, you, they, they're. I think that what horror fans love about when their favorite sort of horror icon actors and actresses appear in films now or when they're in sequels, when a sequel picks up with the first one leaves off, is that that's really the filmmakers and more so the producers and the people putting the money behind it willing to invest in something that matters to people and giving respect to what's already established. And that's a beef that I think a lot of the horror fans have in general with remakes is that they often feel like it's cashing in on something. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of remakes that get it right. I mean, talk about Carpenter. Let's look at the thing. I don't want to go down that road necessarily tonight, but just saying, I think that part of the issue fans have with that is that it does feel a little soulless when a movie like um, the Prom Night remake. Oh, yeah. And it's so completely irrelevant, so vacant, and so absent of any worth. I mean, I can't say that as a whole. That's kind of unfair to filmmakers who are part of it. There's a lot of people who go into making these things, but still, well, that's it, what makes that movie feel different than like Carpenter's The Thing or Halloween Two. Well, like you said, some of them are just kind of these just little bit of cash grabs that have an established name, and you don't necessarily have to inject anything new in it. You know, it's just rinse, wash, and repeat, and you see that time and time again. But Halloween 2 itself is almost organic in, the, in terms of the way it plays out. You can see yeah. it happening the way it happens. Yeah. Um, there's even a bit I remember where one of the nurses mentioned, she, they're, they're talking, and she says, I saw him, you know. And they're like, who? And she's like, Michael Myers. He was walking in the field. Right. And it always really weirded me out. So whenever I was driving with my folks, I would just stare into these fields anticipating seeing him staring back at me <laughs> and again these films just imprinted on so many of us growing up where they i'm a 39 year old responsible adult and i still get weirded and creeped out from this yeah i'm pretty leery about hot tubs <laughs> <laughs> well and, and it's building a myth like we talked about the mythos we talked about the, the world of halloween that's really established and cemented in part two. Yeah. Because not a lot of movies take time outside of the first. Like, the first film is so claustrophobic. The only people who are ultimately really affected by it are the victims. And right. The people that are really close to them. It doesn't feel like, outside the police force, in the first one, like, it's expanded into this great, like, it, it really doesn't begin to grow out of this block of homes, essentially. Mm -hmm. And in the second one, that scene with the nurses is a great one when they're sitting and they're talking about that or when they're outside and even walking to the car then that makes the walking to the car extra scary oh and yeah because it, you're establishing the idea that these people aren't just exi existing to be victims of this thing they're they're living in a very real world where yeah. people would be talking about this if this was happening in whatever town you live in People will be talking about it within a few hours, and then the myth would grow like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's going to be sightings on every street corner. <laughs> They'll see them on every street corner. Oh, that old Myers kid's back in town. <laughs> and you definitely, uh, uh, Loomis definitely gets his Ahab moment here when he finally takes that. Well, I get it's uh, Laurie shoots his eyes out, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the big explosion. And technically, you could look at this as a series wrap-up. Mm -hmm. Like, you really... And I think that's what Carpenter was like. There's no more stories to tell after Halloween 2. Which, which is... But again, I always thought, in the, my, my heart of hearts, my mind of minds, I was like, 
fucking Michael is driving the ambulances that go away. Bum 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 bum. I was like, hold on, like by the twilight. You want to see something really scary? You know that kind of whole like crazy ambulance driver thing. But they wouldn't really give you that with this particular movie. You know, I think they really tried to make a definitive ending to this, which I think is you know Halloween two is great, but I want to make sure we get and give some love here because in terms of a transition, because we have the the death of Michael Myers, we have technically the death of Loomis. You know, kind of depending on how you view the film which brings us to halloween 3 which i really want to talk a little bit about more in depth on this one uh because this is the one that for the longest time it gets so much unnecessary hate it was a, it was the redheaded stepchild of the series for the longest time yeah this was a well, film was until resurrection came out and then <sighs> resurrection Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. No. So, Mike, my, my, I'm curious because I really feel obviously, and I, I think this is pretty evident, but there's more of a resurgence and a critical reevaluation of Halloween Three: Season of the Witch came out in 1982. I think there's more love given to it now, and I think it's maybe because there's been enough time mm-hmm. given from when it was released. It didn't do very well. People, it was critically panned. The fans didn't like it. And, you know, obviously, which is why we get Halloween 4. But now more and more people are coming out of the work saying, no, Halloween 3 is really, really good. And I think because they're taking the whole Michael Myers aspect out of it and looking at it as a separate entity, a whole separate story, as opposed to a continuation of the Haddonfield mystique. You know, right. just if because if you just if they just called it Halloween season of the witch, I think it would have got a lot more love than it does. But calling it Halloween three now that everybody's think, okay, they're ready for, cause you have Friday the 13th, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And it's all like nightmare on Elm Street. It's all Fred. It's all Jason. And then nightmare on Elm Street, they're all Freddy. This one says, no, we're going to do something different. We're going to tell you a cool little story, <laughs> you know? And that's why I think a lot of people give it hate because there's no Michael. Myers. Where the fuck is Michael Myers? I don't want to see people killing. But they don't realize that if they just sit down and watch this movie on its own, it's a fucking great movie. What are your thoughts on it, Justin? I completely agree. I've okay. Been, I've <laughs> Phew! Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. no. Oh, we, no. We thought she disconnected for a second. They were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> we're both looking at each other and looking at the thing like, oh, shit. Did it happen again? You did fade away for a second. You faded away, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Again. And then you came back up, so that's good. But, yeah, I, I really, I, I really, really love Halloween 3. I watch it more than any other entry in the franchise now. I think it holds up so well. I love the the atmosphere of it, the setting. I mean, Tom Atkins, I just love yes. Tom Atkins, read the newspaper. He's just a fucking man. <laughs> and so and he's such a, he's just, oh my God, had his best in this movie. They don't and, make him like him anymore. You, you know, you no, don't see... You don't see horror films built around middle-aged, barrel-chested... old, grizzled man getting younger chicks and taking care of business, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and it's something that you know... You, oh, he is... He's the shit, dude. It was really good. Yeah. Uh, we've got an Alamo Draft House here, and last uh, Halloween they did this whole movie mystery marathon, and they opened it with Night of the Creeps, and we're like, oh, cool, Night of the Creeps, love that movie. And then the second yeah. film they did was Halloween 3. And I was like, oh, shit, Tom Atkins double feature. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people in the theater had never seen Halloween 3. So, again, wow. it was a chance. Yeah, oh, it was great seeing it with a crowd. But once again, because people don't see Michael Myers in it, they right. dismiss it as a piece of shit. But further from the truth, you know? It's such an interesting original film. And I know John Carpenter's original intention was to make these kind of films built around 
Halloween. Right. Fuck Michael Myers. Let's look at the actual season of Halloween and the history of it. And, oh my goodness, this one is a nasty little tale. Oh, yes. This is wonderful. I mean, you got paganism and you got Stonehenge and turning... Like, the fucking Roseanne and her family into fucking arbitoriums. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. And you also, uh, in terms of the cast, you got Tom Atkins killing it. Uh, but then you've got uh, <laughs> Dan O'Hillary. Hillary, I believe, is the pronunciation, uh, as just the evil yeah. Irish witch, basically. <laughs> Waterlock. Who is all about, you know, just this this sacrifice to the pagan gods. Mm-hmm. And you, we, we talked about how... Um, there was a Sam Hain reference in Halloween too, and here you get even more of that. And I don't know if maybe that was intentional as kind of a setting off point for how Halloween three Halloween three went, but to me it works perfectly. And actually, I think these are this is a trilogy you could watch just in terms of you get that little taste of the Sam Hain, the Sam Hain trilogy. Yeah, and then you just you know it gets accentuated in Halloween three. Um, but when do you think this critical about eva- reevaluation happened? Do you think it was because of Halloween Resurrection? No, I was joking about that. I was saying that you mentioned it was like the most reviled oh, yeah. franchise. And I'm like, eh, until Resurrection came out. Then that became the redheaded stepchild. But, you know, I think that I really think this has matured along with people's view on Carpenter as a whole. I think when his legacy came into full view and cinema fans of all walks, not just horror fans, really started paying attention to him and looking back on all that he had done, that's when this happened. It's the same thing with like Assault on Precinct 13. <sighs> Even Dark Star, mm-hmm. way back with Ilito Bannon, um, Prince of Darkness is another one that a lot of people didn't acknowledge much uh, for a long time, and it, it's such a fantastic movie. But I think Carpenter as a whole has seen a tremendous resurgence in the last like five years here, and Scream Factory has something to do with that. But I think just the vintage of the fans, like the people our age are now the ones making the movies, mm-hmm, writing mm-hmm. the magazines, doing the podcasts, whatever it might be. And so we're now talking about the things that we grew up loving. The generation before us had theirs. Well, for us, it's John and it's guys and his of his ilk. And so I think openness to Halloween 3 has come with that mixed with greater discussion as a whole. And that's the advent of the real explosion of social media and things where people can Mm. pour over every detail of all these films. And eventually that conversation in the Halloween is going to work its way to Halloween 3. And when when it goes from being passive reader reading a magazine to engaged 50 people in a chat room discussing whatever it might be, then it, it, it gets much bigger. And I think that by default conversation, much more talk, really passionate fans who have access to more materials than we've ever had historically all of that leads to movies like this getting their own at some point i think that's what's happened i'm glad it is because it definitely is a movie that needs to be revisited and given the love that it truly deserves well this was the film for a long time when you were a halloween fan a lot of people wouldn't listen to you saying no it's no it's, it's a, a legit good film. movie because like like once again like i said there's no fucking michael myers in it it's not halloween i'm like well it's a fucking awesome movie yeah if you separate it from the halloween franchise it totally stands on its own and i think it deserves to stand on its own and almost be separated from the halloween franchise as a whole because it is really the obvious one that is different i mean technically michael myers does appear in the film you know yeah. just <laughs> with that little bit in the background which is great i think that was I, so you know does that exist in a universe where halloween is just a film 
you know, and you know there are some Michael Myers masks that's going around. placed in the real world. You know, could they have replaced some of the uh, the witch masks? You maybe, know, yeah, maybe I was gonna say maybe Silver Shamrock starts putting out Michael Myers masks. <laughs> that would be great, and you also get the uh, the the intro to Halloween Three is amazing. <laughs> yeah, with that score and that great little digital work, the whole eight eight bit yes. thing going on. Yeah. And this, to me, is the score that I think is really underappreciated for John Carpenter. This is one of my favorite ones, and this is the one I've been trying to seek out. And I'm praying, like, Mondo or Death Waltz or one of those, you know, awesome companies re-releases it, puts it back on vinyl, because it is awesome. And this was when he was, again, working with uh, Alan Harworth a little bit more. Um, And it's really, really good, and it's one of my favorites. But you also get the famous... Eight more days till Halloween, Halloween. It's almost time, kids. Grab your masks and don't forget to watch the horror movie marathon and the special masses from Silver Shamrock. It's so amazing and wonderful, and it's just one of those little jingles that will get just in, into your mind, man. It's I don't know. There's just so much to love about this film. You've got the crazy androids. Again, Tom Atkins just not giving a fuck. Nah. Well, just, no, he gives a fuck. Oh, he, <laughs> he, he gives a fuck. So you get <laughs> these elderly Irish witches. You've got kids' faces just transforming into, as you said, arboretums. You yeah. know, for the most part, it's just it's a very and one of the things with John Carpenter you get is he's very cynical, anti-authority. This the ending of this film. It, My God. Yeah, this could almost be in the Apocalypse Trilogy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. This makes it the quadrilogy for the most part because basically yeah. our nation of kids are fucked. Because he, I mean, he really doesn't re- <laughs> Unless they're watching Channel 5 or right. that one channel that doesn't play. And that's the beauty of this film that came out in 1982 where you could make a phone call and maybe make shut down an entire station, you know, <laughs> with an impassioned enough plea, I guess. Um, that in itself is kind of silly. But no, I mean, because Tom Atkins sells it. Like yeah, he does. He there's no like goofing around, winking at the camera when it comes to Tom Atkins. He's like, I'm gonna roll. I'm gonna play a role. Like, all right, Tom, go for it. It's it's yeah. I'm just a huge fan of this film. Um, I'm glad they were. It's really gotten the appreciation that it deserves for the most part. Um, I think we can definitely spread the word a little bit more out there. If the you Church will. of Samhain. The Church. <laughs> Well, Dan O'Hurler, he just plays a great villain, mm-hmm. and he gives the great exposition. The fact that, and it does, let's let's admit it, it does get a little goofy and grandiose when you've got the whole Stonehenge. Yeah. But I kind of like that. Well, and then robots. Robots yeah. and Sam Henge, uh, Stonehenge don't seem to go, you, normally you wouldn't put them together, but in this one it works quite well. Yeah, I'm... I'm and, I love, and I love how we just blow off the explanation. Oh, sure. He's like, he's like... <laughs> Stonehenge, and he's like, ah, we had a time getting you here. You wouldn't believe how we did it. And that's the extent of the explanation. Like, you'd never hear anything else in even any effort to explain how they got that big pizza Stonehenge over there. It's so great. And you, and you know, you, like, fuck you. Exactly. <laughs> right. You don't need it. it right. just, it's not necessary with this kind of film. Yeah. Because this is a, it's a very mean film. Yes, it is. It's, and it's, this is one of those, I remember seeing it as a kid. It really freaked me out because I like masks. I love horror marathons. You know why? Why wouldn't this happen to me? Right? Because I would be eating that shit up if I would. If I if this was a real thing, I would be having snakes growing out of my head by now. You know, you would have made a good Medusa look for yourself, right? man. Yeah, yeah. No. So there's just so many things to like with this film. I really enjoyed. It. I'm again. I'm glad it's getting the resurgence that it deserves. Um, also written and directed by Tommy Lee Wallace who has ties to the Halloween franchise as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Um, and, you know, you actually, you look at some of the uh, the Halloween films, uh, they were kind of launching pads for a lot of people. Um, Nick Castle 
went on to uh, write and direct Tommy Lee Wallace, Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, all of those people have are just bigger and brighter than a lot of people based around Halloween, which is yeah. great. So, uh, guys, final thoughts on Halloween 3? I love it. Essential. Essential. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and take a real quick break, and when we come back, we're going to... It's, it's actually appropriate because there is quite a big break between Halloween 3 and Halloween 4 we got coming up. But uh, when we come back, we will be rejoined by Justin. So we will be back here in a bit, the guys. This is Sid Haig for Nightmare Junkhead. Listen, I'll come over there and put my boot all up in your ass. All right, gang, we are back and we are still here with Justin Beam, resident Halloween expert and giving us... Dropping some knowledge, man. I know. Science, dude. Shit. Like, I'm feeling just bigger and brighter right now. I feel like, you know, I need to put on my, uh, get my little recorder out, go, I'm going to send you an apple, Justin, okay? Just, you know, (laughs) as any good student would to their teacher there. Um, But we left off with Halloween 3, made in 1982. And unfortunately, it didn't get the the enthusiasm and the praise it deserved back in the day. It was kind of considered a commercial flop. And the producers at this time, now, the rights went back to Mustafa Akkad, if I remember right. Is that correct, Justin? That is correct. And this was his baby. He was like, uh, you know what? The, the Halloween, it needs it needs the Michael Myers. Ah, that's a horrible Italian accent. <laughs> that's, I'm sorry. Uh, God rest his soul. They need to make the water back of my with the big the big ring. But in 1988, they went back to the well. We get Halloween 4, and they're putting it in the title, gang. There is no ambiguity right. here. This is the return of Michael Myers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you fans asked for it. We're going to fucking give it to you whether you want it or not. It was, it was kind of great that way. And this came out in 1988, so this is one of the films that I saw in the theater. Because I was all of uh, 12 years old, 13 years old when this came out. Which no, is like exactly... The age and the audience they were making this film for. Uh, directed by Dwight Little, written by Alan B. McElroy. Now, this Justin, I know like you did you did bits and pieces with like the commentary track and the special behind the scenes on Halloween Four. Um, what are your thoughts with the return of Michael Myers? I think it was essential. I remember when it came out; it was such an exciting thing. And then the buzz about the finale of the film <laughs> was huge, and my friends and I just could not stop. Like, what's it? Is it going to be her? Is it going to whatever? And I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. But such a cool, beautiful return. I think it's a gorgeous film. Dwight Little does a great job. He it's almost an Italian film in how it's shot, the use of color, and how it's just splashed with blues all over the place. Like I just I really think that I know a lot of people have issue with where things went from here. But I think that Halloween 4 is is a fantastic sequel. I think it does absolute justice to the original. I think that it established some great new characters as well. And I, the, from the score, I mean, Alan Howarth stepped into the full shoes scoring this one here. Talk about opening intro sequences. Oh. Nothing in the, fra- in the franchise so perfectly captures Midwestern fall. Yes. Like mm-hmm. Halloween 4. That yeah. intro... The colors, the the shot, even the um, the font and the color of the font in contrast with the shot that at the beginning. That's one of my all time favorite scenes from the the entire series. Just that opening shot because it's almost menacing. <laughs> Again, it's just introduced intro, because around the time of the round fall, around October, that's when the bad shit happens. And to me, that was just a perfect shot of there's some bad shit on the way. Like, you know, things have been good for a spell. Dark now, clouds on the horizon. Yes. Man. All that, that intro and the font and the color of it. So, so good. And I'm, 
this is one I hadn't seen in quite a while. So rewatching it for this, for uh, kind of doing some research on it, I was surprised at how much I really did enjoy it. I didn't have the fondest memories for the most part, mm-hmm. but rewatching them, I'm like, wow, this is a really good, almost like not a reboot or, but more like a revamp for the eighties, because I really do feel like it puts in some slasher tropes in there. You get some more gruesome kills, um, a little bit more updated, a little bit of a faster pace. But like you said, I really think Dwight Little was trying to pay homage to Carpenter and some of the establishing shots. Um, just like you said, we're actually, it's on the background right now. And you mentioned some of the, the, the blues. blue and we've got it now where they're in the house uh, where they basically have, it becomes the Sultan precinct 13 where, you know, Michael Myers breaks through, but yeah, it's just so gorgeous. And even the way um, the shots look in the dark, because that's the thing with this film is a lot of it, a majority of it, the, the like the last three fourths, it's all in the dark, and it just looks so good. I was really, really, really happy with this one. Genius, what do you think on it? Oh, I thought it was great too. Like when I first saw it, I thought it was it was a good movie, but I was younger at the time, and it wasn't until like revisiting when you're like, oh, God, this was a fucking good movie, and it's almost. It's a good homage, like you said. It's a good homage, and it's almost sad to see how the franchise then goes because it starts off strong, you know, with this one, but then it's like, hmm. well, the only thing that really didn't work for me on this one was the shape himself. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the mask just seemed a little bit off. And this is where with I, the wild hair, I don't mind the hair so much, but even just the way that the character that, uh, the actor that portrayed him just seemed a little off to me. I don't know if it was, looked like just even the way he was shaped so to speak there was just something a little off on that that never really inspired the terror that the first one did like i think there's some really scary shots in this one but this is one i wasn't truly scared of which Mm -hmm. kind of affects me in a way uh justin what do you think about the the actor the the shape in this particular entry well it was george wilbur and he ended up playing michael in halloween six as well and i you you have to think about this time in film and in horror especially. This was the age of the splatter film. In mm-hmm. fact, 1988 was one of the greatest years for horror, just period. Like the list of films that came out that year, I'm not even going to attempt to touch <laughs> the tip of the iceberg here. Just go to IMDb and search because it's absolutely incredible. But I think it's equal parts a product of the first and second film and also of its time. And so they were definitely wanting to keep up with the Joneses in terms of the gore and the, and the pace of the film. But they were trying to blend that with a very old-fashioned approach to storytelling. Like we talked about Halloween 1, Halloween 2, being you know, almost you know, the second one, almost like a silent film. Both the first and second are so methodical and slow-paced. And this definitely has a deliberate pace to it, too. That's not to say it's a you know, super-edited you know, hyperfest, but it, it, it takes its time as well. So I, I in terms of Michael Ma, nah. and how he's portrayed here, I think he's more J- Jason. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. One, it seems like the the movements and the, it's not quite as natural. Like what made the shape Michael Myers terrifying in the first one was that he was a man mm-hmm. and he fell down and he missed sometimes with a knife and he would stumble and whatever. He gets his mask. Pulp, you know, shot off. In, in the second one is when we really start stepping into sort of the superhuman territory when he walks through the, the glass, glass yep. window, the door. And so that was the first indication of that. 
And this is also when Jason was taking a similar turn, like zombie Jason in Jason Lives. Mm-hmm. He, he, it became a completely different character at that time. The, I think that it appealed to audiences in a way that it needed to. I think that um, I, I, what we talked about with Dwight Little and his approach to how he directed it and all of that, I, he, that's a tough gig. That's a tough gig to walk into. There was some big shoes to fill. It is. I mean, you have the legacy of two of what many people consider one of the most important horror films in cinema, and a third one that, of course, now we adore at the time was very misunderstood. And the, certain, the future was not clear for Halloween. This was not a given. Right. While it, while it was the age, the gold, a golden age for horror, no one knew that, that Halloween 4 was going to make any money, and so it was a bit of a gamble. But Mustafa believed in it, and his partners really believed in it. And they were adamant about making this happen. And so they went about it in a way that somehow still manages to feel timeless, though. And that's another aspect to these films, that they don't feel dated. Outside of Resurrection, which is very Internet-tied, Yeah, I think most of the films in this franchise, most all of them, sort of just exist in their own universe very comfortably, where a lot of the movies that were made around that time are very dated for a number of different reasons. But I don't feel like Halloween 4 feels old. No, not at all. In when fact, we're getting ready to. Um, we're kind of arriving in the background yeah, right now. The uh, the uh, the whole roof sequence is getting ready to come out, which was for me a great set piece oh, oh, for yeah. this film in terms mm-hmm. of amping up the terror and just the tension that you got in the first one. Because this, oh my god, even just the fact that they're sliding on this roof and you feel the dread for poor little Danielle Harris. Oh, she Jamie is just such a wonderful little kid. And Danielle Harris, let's talk about her for a second. Yeah. So me and Danielle Harris are kind of around the same age. So like, I've always kind of had like a little crush on her. You know, I mean, not now looking at Danielle Harris <laughs> and Halloween Four. I'm not like, hey, hey, but like now looking at Danielle Harris, she's she's a treat. Drink and um, but this is a great like. Hey, here's a new little horror queen coming up, and you can tell by her little acting chops that she can go on to cool horror things. Because if she doesn't sell the movie, if she yeah. doesn't work, this entire movie I don't think works. And for me, she just in terms of a kind of a, a hello, I'm Daniel Harris. Damn, this movie really works. Uh, Justin, your thoughts on Miss Harris? Yeah, she's way beyond her years. Right. She's a seasoned, a seasoned scream queen actress at that age and the, the maturity with which she approached the role was absolutely mind-boggling and it's hard we almost take it for granted now especially big fans of four and five in particular you watch these movies so many times and you almost forget that this is a this is a little kid and she's being put in incredibly intense situations and still managing to do what she does in a clown suit well, yeah, but I mean, especially when we get into part five, we talk about the intensity with what she was dealing with and how she came. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible how it all kind of works so very well, um, and the fact that if again, if she, yeah, if she doesn't. 
Oh, no, I was going to say, if she doesn't sell the movie, unfortunately, just the movie itself doesn't work. Um, but then we also got Donald Pleasance coming back, returning to the role as Dr. Loomis. Now, I think it could have been really easy for them to just dismiss Loomis altogether, saying right. that he died in the fire. And we get that nice little bit where he's got the little scar on his face, mm-hmm. which is a callback to part two. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Michael Myers actually is also, at, like you mentioned, Justin, he's more of a, not a zombie per se, but he's a burnt out. Supernatural. Husk, yeah. yeah. He becomes more of this this thing um now one of the other things that um i really like about this film though is that um shot in the garage when you when loomis and michael myers come face to face again you get that wonderful little zoom shot the push pull -pull, yes which you don't get a lot in a in a horror film Mm -hmm. the fact that they even attempted that i think really shows the care uh that they were kind of going for with this particular film um but you mentioned earlier the ending of this film (sighs) Tying it all back. Yes, which is one of the things I really, really like. The fact that, you know, it seems like this whole presence is being passed down Mm -hmm. to his... Now, it was was Jamie... Keeping in the the family. right? Yeah. Yeah, and you get that great end scene where she's got the clown mask on, got the scissors... And it's just going, just killing the yeah. mom. And of course, you got Loomis in the background. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. And you, you notice he was really quick to shoot. <laughs> he was, he was ready to take out little Jamie. Loomis will fuck a kid up. <laughs> shoot first and ask questions later. He has no, but. I really like that ending, and it was a ballsy ending, and it's like, wow, are they going to take the franchise this direction? Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, Justin, you guys, you guys, you had heard about the ending. Um, did it did it hold up for you when you saw it originally? Oh yeah, absolutely. I and it's such a drastic, such a crazy turn of events because you have every reason to believe Michael's dead at that point, right? And seeing that happen with her and you're like is it going to be a kid and you spent the running time of the film with this adorable little girl who's fought against all odds to try to stay alive and has survived through so much already and then in the end she's the one that's now she's the, the monster like what it was such a, a 180 i mean such a drastic turn it was a brilliant move but thoroughly confusing for audiences and also you know like what happens next year and i we can talk more about that when we get to <laughs> five, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, they didn't really carry it over. I thought it was it would have been a great way to 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 transition the franchise to go away from Michael Myers into little Jamie. It wouldn't even be it would have been a great way to end the franchise. Sure. Oh yeah. You know, this, this it, it's, easily, it could be. You could easily just like okay, we're done. But because it made a lot of money, yeah, right. They were like, and I think they didn't. They specifically say within the scripts like they could never definitively kill Michael Myers. Like, there always had to be a way for him to come back? Well, and there, and there always is, regardless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah, but in, in this one, there's no way to know, oh, that grave is actually a well. Right. There was no way to know that. <laughs> oh, which is, yeah, and it's and it's great because you get this turn of, a, a turn of events where you have literally the entire town gunning for Michael mm-hmm. Myers. And the second one actually introduced the fact that other people would wear the mask. Right. In fact, isn't that where Ben Tramer dies? Yeah, exactly. He gets hit by the ambulance and catches on fire. That's a fucked up way to go. That is pretty horrible. But this has got that great scene where Loomis thinks he sees Michael Myers. Just and then he's capping people. And then he sees another Michael Myers. And you're like, what the fuck is going on here? But then you realize the kid's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because right. again, Loomis is ready to cap. Yeah, he, Loomis, Loomis, Loomis is a gangster in this movie. He's, he's, he ain't going to bow down to no man. No, there's no hesitation with him, which I really think 
works with the character because he's he, he's become obsessed and he's seeing this stuff happen time and time mm-hmm. again where the fact that yeah i would probably go the same way i would be trigger happy right i'd be looking to end this as quickly as possible without another massacre on the hands yeah but unfortunately we get another massacre here and in, this is the film where you start getting the elaborate deaths and you know with friday the 13th there's always the what's your favorite death in friday the friday the 13th series you really couldn't get that with the first two films and now you get right off the bat there's the the little he mm-hmm. impales the guy in the head with his thumb he uh he impales the girl with the shotgun you know you get more elaborate death scenes and like you said Justin they had to keep up with the joneses at this point you know they had but what to me this is a great way to do it they introduced all those things in the 80s, the gore, the more gratuitous nudity, and made it work within the Halloween franchise. Yeah. And the fact that everybody in town knows shit's going down. It's not just like, oh, there's crazy old Loomis now. But it's like, oh, fuck, there's Michael Myers again. Yeah. You know shit is... You talk about Loomis, and, and, and I think in this film, he has my favorite moment with him. And it's when he's hitchhiking, and he gets picked oh, the- up by... By the pastor, yes. yeah, and there's and and, he, and he's singing in the car, and you see that it's the only time in the franchise really that you see a glimpse of joy in him. He, yeah, and it's when he sees this free spirit on the road, this guy, and, and I think that it's a perfect illustration of the difference between a man locked in obsession like Loomis, who's so solely focused on this one thing, this one guy, this one monster, and he's sitting across from someone who has a care in the world who's just out aimlessly driving around backcountry roads, drinking and singing. It's everything that almost like Loomis wants to be. Like, let me be you. Let me be so carefree and free of all this stuff. And in that moment, you see release from him. He takes a pole from the bottle. And it's a a really genuine moment. Because Loomis, honestly, for as much screen time as he has, especially in parts four and five, he doesn't get a lot of depth. No, he's a caricature. He's a caricature, and especially in part five, he's so violent and brutal on that one. But in part four, there's this transition for him that goes from madness and this exhaustion into a mania kind of state. But that one moment, that moment in the car, I think is a really magical thing, not just for Donald Pleasance, but the character of Loomis. And it it adds something to a character that we really love. And I think it's something that we might not always call to mind when we think about him. But I know it's something that's influential in how much we adore him and yeah. that character. Oh, yeah. And Donald Pleasance is a great actor. Uh, I recently watched Wake and Fright, which he's in. And that, my God, you, that, he's pretty terrifying in that. And I'm just imagining little Daniel Harris acting with Donald Pleasance. And especially what you mentioned in Five, when he gets very rough. Yeah. You know, with, with the, the, the character for the most part. Um yeah, this is this one worked really well for me. Uh, good return to form. Um, the Alan Horworth score again, and you really don't get a lot of use of John Carpenter's material. The classic uh, Halloween score. He does a lot, and a lot of it's kind of ambient in a lot of ways, um, and I think it right. actually really helps set itself apart from the original, but also paying homage to it. Mm-hmm. It just there's a lot of things that came together for this one, and again, it had been six years well technically seven years since we had seen michael myers in the theater so this was you know not a bad way to return back to it so what do we got final thoughts on halloween four excellent all right genius i enjoy i thoroughly enjoyed this movie yeah no it's a great one which unfortunately and depending on who you talk to uh 1989's halloween five the revenge of michael myers and this is the one that I really think 
separates for a lot of people just in terms of where the franchise went. Um, I was confused by this movie. This movie really, like, because there was so many subplots, there was almost, they wanted to throw too much at you and elaborate on the mythos, and I was like, wait, huh? Well, the way yeah. I understood it is they actually had given been given the green light to go forward with another sequel, and by the time they started shooting, they were kind of still putting the script together, which is why you get things like The Man in Black yeah. and those really weird plot points. Um, okay, Justin... What do you think on Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers? One thing we haven't talked much about, which is totally fine with me, but comes into play here, is that for a time I was writing the official book on the franchise. Ooh. And so I, I spent about a year accumulating a bunch of different interviews that I did with a lot of the people and uh, some throughout the franchise. And then the story of Part 5 is actually one of the more fascinating stories behind behind this series of films in that it came together very quickly. It was a year later. I mean, as soon as part four opened, literally like that night, the phone calls started happening, like, we need to do five. It needs to happen. And I, I remember in my, in, in talking with, uh, when I was talking with um, Michael Jacobs, who was a writer of the films, mm-hmm. he, he talked about, because and, and Dominique Othen and Gerard was the director, and he's a very loquacious, romantic, very sort of European cinema guy. And he came into this with a very different perspective, completely unfamiliar with Halloween. But when Michael, the writer, came into this, he was, he, Dominique brought him in. He knew, they knew each other. And he sat down, and he said, Dominique said, sit down. And he hit play on the ending of Halloween 4. Freeze frame on um, little Danielle standing at the top of the stairs with the bloody scissors in her hand and he goes Michael I need you to fix this <laughs> interesting and, and it was uh, and, and it, when they were making the film and, and it's elaborated on even further like in the commentary that I did with Don Shanks on it that who played Michael Myers his memory is a little bit fuzzy on some of the things but the, the real story behind it is that the whole man in black thing you talked about the script sort of being in the works. There was a script when they were shooting the film. There was a finalized script when they were when they were working on it. The, some producer entities came in and said that they needed to add this character. Oh. And so all of this, almost everything with the Man in Black was shot by the second unit. And it was being done simultaneously while Dominique was shooting the main film. And there wasn't a lot of real clear communication between the two. And so they kind of had to marry these two things together in the end and make sense of it. And that was one of the great challenges of this movie is that it was not at all planned out for there to be a, a man in black. Right. It's... At the time, it was the, what they were handed was Michael needs to have a sibling and this is who it is. Find a way to make it work. And so they came in and they quickly got the stuff written added a few elements to it the thorn thing grew out of that and that you know sort of spread into the main structure of the film and by the end of it Dominique is like and Michael is even like what do we do how do we leave this at the end what do we do with this man in black what do we unveil him what do we do and the only edict that came down was get this film made they'll figure it out in part six <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly how it went and so it ends with this sort of very ambiguous. Mark. Yeah, very ambiguous ending. 
and the, and that was a big part of why it wasn't a number of years again and before you saw another sequel because oh yeah there was a pretty good there's like a yeah six-year gap well th- what's interesting with halloween five is i also this is another one i saw in the theater and i was i was telling genius this was for a while when it was out on vhs was kind of my go-to halloween date movie like scary movie if i ever got a date and you know i was wanting to watch a scary movie with someone so i've oh, yeah. seen this movie probably more times than the actual original halloween which is weird but there's definitely it's an uneven kind of movie but there are some pieces in here that like the laundry shoot sequence mm-hmm. that to me still stands up to some of the, the scariest oh yeah it that to me still works in terms of tension and what have you but to me it is kind of a cop-out that jamie isn't the killer they actually say i think she either she injured the mom and didn't go through with it but you find her in a, this like catatonic state and then she has this weird psychic connection and of course my oh wow okay what's See, really, that's, okay. Yeah, that's what i was like what? sorry 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 justin we're watching again halloween four in the background my wife just flushed her we're in the basement and the wife just i think flushed the stool so we hear this water going through and right now the, the end sequence with her in the tub is going so it was like it was kind of like halloween four in 4d <laughs> So it kind of threw us all off here. Um, but yeah, it's basically a direct continuation of part four. But here, Michael doesn't die. Obviously, he falls down the well. This old little hermit takes him in. And apparently he, you know, is mending for a year until Halloween comes out again. And then he's out of, you know, back and he's out of retirement. He's ready to go. Yeah. it's And then you get, again, kind of a rehash of Halloween four for the most part. Yeah. Which, I don't know if that's necessarily... It's, it's the Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 thing. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is, actually, because there is some really weird, funny, like, the the, 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 the Keystone Cops theme with yeah. the policemen that come around. Uh, yeah. There's some... there's It's just... It kind of, for a while, took me out of the film, where it was just harder to get into it. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad film. I think there was some some good stuff in there. In fact, for the it's longest time... Too convoluted. It really is. It really is. There's too many ideas being put yeah. into it where they needed to take a step back and say, you know, what worked with part four, let's continue to build on that rather than just throwing every single thing. Is this yeah. one of those too many cooks in the kitchen? Too many cooks. <laughs> um, Oh yeah, no. That's a, <laughs> in fact, I'm kind of just waiting for his uh, face to show up in here in one of the right. Halloween films. We actually mentioned he kind of looked like one of the, 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 the silver the ma- shamrock. Yeah, he looks, like, he looks like the silver shamrock pumpkin. <laughs> but you get this really weird psychic connection now between Jamie and Michael, where she starts seeing things mm-hmm. through his eyes, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, it's kind of cool because it runs in the family. But once again, is that do we need that? I mean, did we need the thorns? Did we need the man in black? Did we need the Keystone Cops? Did we need the the whole like? Jamie's now psychic. You know, do we? It's like, let's throw as much tropes. Let's take everything that Friday the 13th has done so far and let's put it in part five. Yeah. And well, actually, I think um, Daniel Harris does another really good acting job in this one. But she's Daniel Harris. She is. She yeah. is. You know, she'll she'll take whatever it is and make it gold. Uh, but even her, her whole catatonic thing was a little. I actually, I kind of like that because. Let's face it, if you witness what you did, if you went through what she went through... There's going to be some backlash. You're going to be a little messed up. And yeah. they, I think they could have explored that a little bit more. Yeah. I, I don't know. Just in terms of, are you are you happy with the, the, the path that Halloween 5 took? And I'll lay that out for Genius and Justin. Go for it, Justin. Yeah, well, I, I think that they were struggling to find a way to keep things interesting. And when you do, this, when you do the family storyline... And you're so at that point, Michael Myers is bound to that, 
and the, the mythos is pretty much, and it remained sort of inextricably tied to that from that point forward after part two. They were trying to find a way to keep things fresh and not just remake the same film. They were doing right. it on a very limited time frame. What I think was an accidental, happy, happy accident in this, I guess you could say, was Dominique coming in as director. And I know that he was a bit challenging to work for for some of the people, although Danielle has always said she loves him. Mm-hmm. Um, his perspective was so un-American and so not watered down by having seen all these films with all the tropes and the Friday the 13th and all that stuff. He was completely outside of that world. And so what he came in as was a filmmaker first. And so he had very distinct theories about how to shoot and present these characters. And, you know, really pushing Loomis to be this extreme character. You watch Italian films, you watch these movies from overseas, a lot of times the characters are so big, they're Mm -hmm, so large. mm -hmm. And that's this movie in every way. And there are set pieces within it that are gorgeous. He was set dead set on using natural lighting for as much of the film as possible where part four is bathed in like an argento-like palette mm-hmm. part five part five is, is organic it's almost like home video in how in the barn the light through the slats is the moonlight and the all of it is naturally lit which makes it feel very raw that's one of the things that makes chainsaw massacre for example such an effective film is that it it thrives in elements that are real it's not a piece of cinema to the audience as much as it is stepping into this horrible scenario yourself. And that's part of what works so well with Part 5, is that it is completely organic feeling all around. And Loomis takes a, a really... I mean, the most challenging thing for me in this film is Loomis and how he handles Jamie and the, and the kids in general. I mean, he's oh, yeah, he... He really this Yeah, oh they are. They are. They're just a little they're a little pawn to finally get a checkmate with Michael Myers to the point where he just roughhouses her when they're when they're in the Myers household for that last scene. But I again, I really like that laundry shoot sequence. That to me is the one that sticks out. And like I said, to to me it still holds up to this day. Um, But I don't know. I've seen this movie so many times that it's harder for me to I think approach it from more an objective stance. Because I do have uh, kind of a weird association with it. But for me, this is the one that also, again, with the man in black. Let's talk about the ending really quickly. Because they finally ring in Michael Myers. They've got him at with the all police the station. Yes. Yeah. And they've he's all sedated, shot up. And he's just looking almost lifeless in the jail cell. Like he's got no direction. And then you've got the man in black come in. Does a Terminator, basically, on the entire you know police uh, squadron. And I actually like the ending of this one a little bit more with little Dan, with little Jamie going, she's just basically crying. And again, Loomis just like, oh my God, I cannot believe this is happening again with that just great shot where they're moving away from the jail cell with all the dead bodies and no Michael Myers. Yeah. Because the man in black saved him, took took him away for, for what? We don't know. And as Justin said, they didn't necessarily know either. <laughs> Which is a little bit problematic because uh, now, in terms of box office, did this one do as well? It didn't do as well as four, but it did. It did okay. I mean, I, I, it still did pretty well. There was that ending sequence in the police station was shot. They did actually shoot the entire massacre, and it was it really was so intense and absolutely gory that. And I included a couple stills from it in my documentary short that I had that ran in theaters that I mentioned that because I wanted to sort of give people a glimpse into that. 
Um, but it, so it was shot. But when they when when they, everybody saw it, they're like, it's just way too much. Wow! I mean, it was it, it was an absolute like Friday the Thirteenth gore fest. Now was it a combo it with Michael Myers and the Man in Black, or was it? Yes, it was. It was both of them together. Really? And just just like mowing through a police station full of people. I would love and, to see that. And and there are some remnants of it that you've seen. I think Fangoria accidentally ran a shot from it. You know when the film came out. Um, you see at the at the end when they're sort of showing the aftermath, uh, going down the hall. There's mm-hmm. a, they, they they move the shot and you can tell that in post they made it a slow motion move down the hall because it's a little bit jerky. But it, it was originally just you know standard pace shot and you can see a little bit of the remnants of the carnage all around. And if you look at that that shot really carefully, you can see some of it there. Really. Uh, so it, yeah, it originally was a way over the top, totally crazy, gory. Did it just take story. away from and, and the? Felt, did it take away from like the overall reality. tone of the yeah. film? Exactly, and that's what everybody felt it did. Ah. They thought it was just too much, too much for the franchise, too much for this, and it was sending it in the wrong direction. And so that's why they scaled back on that, cut hmm. basically that entire thing out of there, and then had it end the way that they did. Interesting. Mm. That's that's the, yeah. This is why we bring in the, the big hitters on this one because otherwise it's just yeah. I'm, I'm now. Is this anything that they've included on like for like deleted scenes or you know any of the bonus materials? No, and this is one of the things that I wanted almost more than anything else to find to unearth. When, when I was working on the ink, the Blu-ray with Anchor Bay, they were not as invested in bonus features in this. Uh, they weren't. They didn't. I began a search through archives to try to find the, the full footage. I had stills from it, and I knew it existed, and I knew it existed through interviews with even Dominique. He's described it in detail. Um, and I, w- I wonder, was, I he, was, he, was he upset that, it, that all that material that they shot got cut? He was, yeah. He, was, he talks about being surprised at the end result when he was in the theater, because there were some... Oh. I mean, the, the, the film as a whole has the violence scaled back. Mm-hmm. Most of the most of the kills are trimmed from what they originally were, and he and and when he was sitting in the theater, he's sitting there and, and he was kind of taken aback a little bit by how much it had been trimmed too. Not to say that it isn't his full vision; he still likes the movie, he's still very proud of it. But there was quite a bit of cutting that was done on it, and the end sequence was the greatest victim. And there are a lot of elements that exist out there that I just didn't have the, the chance or the budget wasn't provided to me to be able to evaluate. But I'm certain that it's out there somewhere. Ah, I, know so. I know that it's somewhere. And so, it's the same thing with, with Halloween 6 when I was like, I knew that there was, that all the elements existed for Halloween 6 as the full, what sort of referred to as the producer's, producer's cut, cut version of that film. Yeah. I knew that that existed. And I had seen a lot of it, and I had seen, I had my bootleg videotapes dating back to tape trading days of that, <laughs> but one of, the, one of my pet projects was trying to get the producer's cut to get released, and we were working toward that, and it eventually happened, but um, yeah, anyway, so. Man, no, that, that sounds, yeah, how, that's your, how that's your grail. Is, are you the Loomis now for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They cut it six times! <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's it's an interesting ending. Um, which is gonna? Uh, any other thoughts on Halloween Five Guys? Odd, uh, odd. Okay. Odd. Well, speaking of odd, uh, we had to wait six years for the follow up to this one, Halloween Six. Now we get the curse 
of Michael Myers, and that's not just wordplay. You actually go into this whole curse—is it the Cult of Thorn or Curse of the Thorn? Do we remember if is that is that is it the Curse of the Cult of the Thorn? Because this is where you get a majority of the mythology, and you find out Michael Myers is simply basically this tool. And there's a this, husk. Yeah, yes, very much a husk. It's very weird, which I understand why they did it because they needed to bring something to the table. But it was just weird. Mm-hmm. Like to me, it totally negated Halloween, the original. When we talked about just the randomness, the the ambiguous, the, just the fact that he's just he's a he's human just being, evil. He's just evil. Here we have you get the cause and effect, and I did not like that. That yeah. was one of the things that initially turned me off. Uh, Halloween six, nineteen ninety five, directed by Joe uh, Chappelle, written by Daniel Farrens. All right, Justin, what do you think on Halloween six? I really like this movie a lot. Oh, okay. I saw it in the theater, and I loved seeing it with the crowd, and um. It has its flaws, but it gets a lot of things right. And now, what do you, what do you, what do you, yeah, lay it out on the table here for us. Yeah, one thing you have to consider is that they had sort of milked the family thing. They, they were adamant, Mustafa was not at all interested in there being another film about a little kid. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, I mean, the, in the, uh, the, everyone involved agreed that it shouldn't be another Jamie film. And the negotiations with Danielle sort of broke down at some point, and so they decided to move in a completely different direction with it. And Dan Ferenc has a great commentary, a fan commentary. I think the site was Icons of Fright. I think Rob G, uh, Rob Galuza did it with him. Sort of a fan commentary thing. If you can track that down online, search for that, because it's a, it's a full-length running time commentary with the writer of Halloween 6. Hmm. And Dan's a... Dad's a great guy, super fan. He came into this. I mean, you, this is the first time in the franchise that someone walked in as writer who was absolutely schooled, versed in the, the mythology of, the, of this film, of these films. He knew every character, every scene. In fact, when he walked into Mustafa's office to pitch his script, he presented Mustafa with a Bible, what he called the, the Bible. <laughs> wow. Which were all. Yeah, that was like his sort of Cliff Notes version. All of, in fact, all of his notes from throughout all the films, all the things that he was referencing, all the key moments, key like character structures, who is tied to what, and how that could matter now. And Mustafa said, "Can I keep hold on to this for a while?" And he learned a lot about his own. I mean, like that that book helped educate everybody on what had happened, where they needed to go, and all this. And so Dan was a key player in the evolution of Part Six, and they needed to do something different with it. They needed to find something different. And, um, man, <laughs> I tell you, when I walked out of the theater the first time seeing it, my jaw was on the floor. On the, floor. the first experience with it was negative. Because it's just like with Jason X. Like, I'm sitting in the theater going, what the fuck? <laughs> and, I, and, and I walked out, and I remember my, the girl I was dating at the time, she's like, and she's like, so what did you think? And I just was like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> when I walked out of Halloween 6, I was just completely dumbfounded because it was so crazy and frenetic and the, the whole cult thing was so out of the left field. I mean, totally unexpected. But then as I went and saw it, you know, probably a couple more times, I said, it's really started to grow on me and over the years it has. And I, I, I now, I really enjoy the film. I think it gets the, the atmosphere of Halloween right in a lot of ways. I think it has some really memorable set pieces in it. I love how sort of audacious it is and how crazy the storyline is. 
Mrs. Blankenship, the mythology, sort of the, the old lady telling, like, warning away, talking about, I knew little Mikey Myers, I was with him that night. You know, it, it also does, for the first time, with a new cast, it ties in the previous films with the current story. So everyone in it, a, a, a lot of the characters in it are throwback or carried forward from previous movies, like Tommy. Mm-hmm. Tommy is a character that had been completely forgotten since part one. But then all of a sudden, you know, well, who else is there? We have Jamie. Let's make the movie about Tommy. Right. So Tommy becomes the focus. And I thought that was a great idea. And you're carrying like Mrs. Blankenship. She was the, she was babysitting Michael Myers the night that he killed his sister. That's huge. And, and tapping into the mythology of the original film in a way that no one had ever made effort to do before. And the original so, doctor from the uh, the sanitarium was also tied in back into that, wasn't he? From the uh, first yes. film, because yes. he yeah, and and they and and also Loomis's involvement with the sanitarium, like it's his relationship was a little more fleshed out in part six, which it had never really been explored before. In parts four and five, you didn't know what who he was working for. Loomis works for Loomis. <laughs> works for Loomis. But so it was. But in this one, it's like come back into the fold. You know, he's like, no, I'm retired. And mm-hmm. all he becomes a more fully fleshed out character, which I think is a, a, a something that's unique about Six, and then is also unique about that these are people who have spent a lot of time with these characters. Oh yeah. And they, and and they understand who matters within this universe and they're bringing them forward and that's one thing that Dan did and I think that Chappelle did a damn fine job directing the movie now all that being said <laughs> at risk of being long-winded again the the people at Dimension hacked the shit out of this movie yeah it went it went through an absolute editing nightmare and by the time it hit theaters uh, Chappelle was like let's make it an Alan Smithy film it oh, was like man. at that point and, and, and it was almost unrecognizable to a lot of the people who had been part of it and the producer's cut shouldn't even be called that first of all but second of all that even that <laughs> is the true version the true full version of the film so what I will say before handing the mic back is everybody please track down I think of the website and I think it's still around it's called Icons of Fright and it's uh, if you search for Dan Farron's Halloween 6 commentary Icons of Fright or something Rob G, I think, is on it with him, and he's a great horror mind. Track that down, hit play on your Blu-ray, and watch it with that commentary. It's a real treat. Well, I know what I'll be doing this weekend now, <laughs> because we are totally the people that love commentary, commentary tracks yeah. and getting that inside scenes. Well, you mentioned um, that it was kind of good to, as, in terms of callbacks to the first film. You've got Kent City's own homeboy, Paul Rudd, in one of his first films uh, playing Tommy Doyle, Doyle, which I thought was actually pretty cool, the fact that they did bring it back to him. Yeah. And that he, almost like Loomis now, is obsessed with Michael Myers, and he's the one that basically figures out how to defeat him, uh, how to put him down. But I also like the fact that the producer's cut for a while was really making, and you mentioned before, just like the tape trading circuit. Like, this is one of those films that you would find at a convention and be like, it'd be like a hush-hush thing. Like, you know, hmm. you'd have to give the handshake, the proper signal to know you were cool to get, you know, access to it because it was a... A lot of people did realize. I remember walking away from the theater confused as well because it's like, wait a minute, what just happened? What did I see with Halloween? Because, like you mentioned, genius. This and almost you can almost tie this to part three in many ways, just in terms of how Michael is an instrument right. of this cult and that he has to eliminate his bloodline for 
the harvest to be pure or something like something that. Something like that. They're going to bring in Stonehenge. <laughs> He's a Stonehenge. And Turns out Michael is Stonehenge, you know, at this Shamrock. point. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. But yeah, they killed off Jamie pretty quickly, um, which then you then dive more into the story. And I do like the fact, Justin, that you mentioned the atmosphere. Because yeah, in the at- the atmosphere in this film, especially when they're in that... I don't know what you would call it, just that 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 sanitarium or whatever that that complex is. Yeah, the weird schoolhousey feel. Yeah, yeah, it's just really weird. Um, but this is one that I really think has taken a beating, and I think it's a lot of because of the fact that it has been just cut up so often and so much that it really doesn't look like a coherent film. Um, I haven't seen the producer's cut yet, which I, I don't know why they call it the producer's cut, but um, having I am assuming you have seen that. I'm sorry, what? Have you seen the producer's cut? Oh, um, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, even back when I was on the videotape circuit, like I said, I, I have, I still have the old videotape that was like 20th generation with the running time at the bottom and like Chinese lettering on it. And oh, wow. It's Yeah, so I, I've been watching it for a long time. This is such a unique thing in that this movie is actually Halloween 1, Halloween 2, and Halloween 6. And then Rob's Halloween 2, all of those films exist in two different forms. And that's really oh, rare. Yeah, yeah that's it's right. Rare, it's really rare for a franchise, for a film to have a second version, let alone a franchise to be riddled with multiple takes on the same thing. Where Halloween 1, the television version, has a, a lot of extra stuff, and it also ties it into Halloween 2. Because by that time, when it hit television, they were trying to link it to what was in theaters. That was the whole point of putting it on TV. Right. Mm. And so they, they shot the extra scenes around talking about Michael, talking about his sister, mm-hmm. and all that talk that's included in the television version. And that was a treasured bootleg for a long time. <laughs> and then Anchor Bay finally released that on DVD years ago, and that's an essential piece to any Halloween collection. Halloween 2, the television version, is, well, is has a lot of... Like, a lot of the gore was scored down... But it's a lot more the atmospheric silent shots. I mean, it's, it's a little bit different in that regard. Ending's a little bit shuffled. Halloween 6, the idea that there is an alternate version of this film, I think is a big part of what's driven fan love for it over the years. Because it's, it's bigger than just one movie. It's actually two films. And you can be on either side of the fence. And that makes for really interesting conversation, which ties back into the whole fan aspect I mentioned about why this legacy continues with these films so it has a lot to do with this and people pouring over what's better the producer's cut or the theatrical cut ending which are very different there's a lot of elements in this film that are very different between the two yeah the and then we'll get to rob's later on oh yeah so well the ending of the uh, of part six was just so abrupt in the in the in the, the theatrical cut that i remember even re-watching it just like last week i, I was just like god damn i forgot how it just like they just throw it down at you and it's like that's the end and you're like uh, uh, wait what 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 just happened here why are they driving away i need some closure here that you don't really get right. um which is very jarring and i think that's probably especially when that's your ending and that's almost a definitive ending because for a lot of for you know halloween four five and six you can really kind of make their own mini trilogy out of uh just yeah. in terms of breaking up the series because that's what i think is kind of cool with halloween is the Jamie arc? Yeah, you've got a Jamie arc, the 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 the, Jay, the, the Lori arc. You've got the Buster Rhymes arc. <laughs> That's, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but you get this cool little mini trilogy out of Halloween four, five, and six that, yeah. taken independently from the other films, makes its own little 
little universe, if you will, which mm-hmm. I kind of dig. I think yeah. that's really cool. And the fact that we're able to do that out of an existing franchise really made it work. Mm-hmm. But and that's what initially led me to Halloween in, at, at, at its outset when to actually working with the brand and which with the company was I was I had this idea for an article on the four through six story arc for Fangoria, and I started doing interviews for it, and I realized, man, this is like there's this is such rich territory and the seed for the book was planted in my mind at that point but the most important thing that happened then was when I interviewed Malik who's most of his son who now runs Trankus Films Trankus International and Halloween 6 was the first one that Malik had anything to do with he was just kind of a teenager at the time he held out on set here and there but <laughs> but he was I mean he's really carried the torch of the brand and arguably you know made the most money for the brand out of uh, Rob Zombie's H2O and Rob's first Halloween film, both of which were tremendously successful, huge money makers, and so Malik deserves a lot of praise in that regard. And my interview with him, we just hit it off really well, and that led to all of our involvement. He and I started a charity together. There's a lot of things that we've that we that we've done, but that was really it. And it was all because of the four through six story arc that I thought was so fascinating. And I love that you have one and two, three on its own, mm-hmm. four through six. H2O and Resurrection are their own thing that can be tied back to one and two. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Have Rob's I just love that it exists in so many little increments, and you can watch any segment of those on their own and be thoroughly satisfied and entertained. Yeah. It's so unique in that regard. And what's pretty cool is the fact that you're going to have different generations of kids growing up on these films where, you know, four, yeah. five, and six are their definitive Halloweens. Halloweens. You know, and oh, yeah. people like us, it's Halloween one and two. Mm-hmm. You're going to, we've mentioned this before, there are people yeah. out there where the remake of Halloween, they're not even aware of the fact that it's a remake. Genius came yeah, across this the other I, day. Today, actually, it was today. I was, um, we, I mean, I'm in a Facebook group called like True Horror Fans or something. Yeah. So one, one of those like goofy horror fan Facebook things, and um, they were talking about like what was better, the original or the remake, or Rob Zombie or something like that. And Rob Zombie's Halloween came up, of course, and everybody's like, "Oh, I love that movie," and everybody's like, "Oh, I hate that movie." And then, then one person says, "Why does everybody keep calling Rob Zombie's movie Rob Zombie's Halloween a remake?" And then I just had to say, look, if you didn't realize that this is a remake, you don't deserve to be in a, a group called True Horror Fans. But, but in defense of that person, we all came into this at some point. Yeah, that's very the true. Fact of the matter, yeah, and the fact of the matter is that, that whatever it was in that film may have led him to that conversation, and that's when he learned about it. So yeah. There was a point where I saw Halloween 2 before I saw Halloween 1. And I, that, so... I mean, I knew about, I, I, I learned about a lot of things into the franchise, like Friday the 13th, for example, I think mm-hmm. I saw probably part four before any of the other ones. I remember seeing that, or may, may have even been Manhattan before all the rest of them, seriously. And so a lot of people would say, what a poser if I got thank fucking God Facebook didn't exist when I was a kid. <laughs> for so many reasons, but also for, I mean, I, those kinds of conversations, but that's just the thing, you know. Um, with this, we all step into it at some point, and this franchise is unique in that you, when you step into one film at any point throughout it, it's going to be tied to, unless it's Halloween 3, it's tied to something else. Yeah. So it's going to lead you elsewhere, and that's the magic of horror. 
is that when you watch a Matthew McConaughey romance movie or whatever, you're not thinking about, well, I'm certainly curious what other film this director's done. <laughs> and that's not to talk smack about whatever directors are making those movies, but when you watch these, you want to know more. Right. And it leads you places. And, it, and that's going to lead that kid back to Halloween 1, and then his mind is going to be blown. And it may be blown at a point in his life when he can truly appreciate it, as opposed mm-hmm. to a lot of people who see it when they're kids and don't get it. But yeah. now maybe he's like, oh man, this is maybe he sees the, the genius in that after what he, you know what, I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I totally dig you. Horror has a really weird connective tissue, just in terms of from film to franchise to the genre in general. Uh, just you mentioned the community it builds, and it yeah. just and it does attract a certain breed of people, I think, for the most part. And and something we've mentioned time and time again is the stereotypical horror fan. They they, they don't they exist certainly, but a majority of them are just well spoken, well thought, well mm-hmm. put together people that enjoy the catharsis of a horror movie. Yeah, they enjoy the technicality of a horror movie. Um, and as the Jean release, was, you got to yeah, feed the gator. Feeding the gator, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. I want to make sure that we're not spending too much time on this, but uh, Halloween 6, um, we definitely have um, thoughts and feelings on it, but final thoughts and feelings on it, guys? Convoluted. Complicated, but in a beautiful way. Worthy of a rewatch? Absolutely worth a rewatch, and I think tracking down the producer's cut is worth it. And I'm also going to note here that Anchor Bay or somebody, I think it was Anchor Bay, just released a bare bones version of that producer's cut. That is some, I'm not even sure it's the full version of it. So I recommend, and I'm just going to say it here, get the, the Scream Factory box set. Oh, yeah. And you, it, it is so important that you get this for a lot of reasons. First of all, all the films under one roof. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of extra bonus features. But the one that gets the most love, the one that has the most on it, is Part 6. It's absolutely incredible how much is included with this disc. And it does have both versions of the film in it. Hmm. Yeah, and I remember people losing their shit when that box set was announced. Yeah. And then yeah. just the heaps of praise. And, and, you know, in, in the age of the internet, you know, everyone's hating on everything. But, man, I just saw so much love and positivity in terms yeah. of the reviews when that came out. It was refreshing. Because everybody enjoys a Halloween movie, at least one or two sure. of them. You know, some of them are like, whatever. But some of them are like, yeah, that's the one right there. Yeah. And it gives you a chance to revisit them all, unlike mm-hmm. you said, under one roof. which is great. So let's uh, fast forward three years later. Uh, we've got, uh, and this is the, the 90s horror is weird uh, just because, you know, some people say it was kind of a low point in horror. Now I will counter argue and say there's some great horror films that came Almost out in the 90s. Definitely, but, but there's def- some in terms of, you know, the, 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 just the Renaissance, the golden years that were the eighties, definitely not as good, which brings us to 1998's Halloween 
H2O, or as genius as you call it. Halloween water. That's right. So, uh, this one directed by Steve Miner, written by Robert Zappia and Matt Greenberg. This one technically ignores the very trilogy we were just talking about. Right. It throws it to the wind, which is really weird because Laurie Strode is alive. And, well... And living a somewhat, well, not really. Not, I mean, not normal. She's but. definitely experienced some PTSD. Uh, but this is another one that uh, people were really talking about because just uh, two years before that, Scream had come out mm-hmm. and had really revitalized the horror community. And that was a Wes Craven movie. So you've got kind of the master, you know, going back to form. And so now we got a Halloween movie kind of in that same vein, that Kevin Williamson vibe. Yeah. You've got a younger, good looking cast. But more importantly, Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis, Lee's back, she's right. back playing Laurie Strode. So, genius thoughts on H two O. You know, when I first saw it, I was I felt disappointed in the theater. I was like, <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, yeah, no, not so much. You know, but upon revisiting, I really enjoyed this movie more than I thought I did. Really, you know what I'm saying? I thought it's not without its missteps, but I thought it was it was a decent movie. It was a good little like. Not call back to form, but it was definitely, but it feels very dated too. You know, the whole, hey, let's beat Kevin Williamson. You know, I just. Anytime Josh Hardnett shows up in your movie, it's right, going to feel a little 90s. Right, 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 right. But, you know, it was cool to see Janet Lee and Jamie Lee. Yes. You know, it was very cool to see that, especially like when you hold part one so near and dear to see kind of that. It was really kind of good. Good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Yeah, it's, this is one that I also saw in the theater, and I've got, you know, Halloween is very near and dear to me, so just even going, getting to see another Halloween movie in the theater was great, mm-hmm. and the fact that they were saying it's kind of a callback to the first one, yeah. I went in with that kind of baggage, but I also then went in wanting to be scared, Yeah, and there were shots in this movie that truly kind of gave me that Halloween feeling again, which I really liked. Um, Justin, what were your thoughts on this one? I was lucky enough to be at a press screening for this, like a, or like a... I guess there was press, and there was also some people who had won tickets and things like that to it in Chicago. And it was, to this day, the biggest theater that I've ever been in to see a movie, and it was wall-to-wall. And we walked in, and they gave us a, 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 they had cut up a print of the film and gave you a couple different, you know, strips of the film, and it was this whole experience. And so I have such fond memories of that night, and seeing it with an audience was absolutely incredible. And this this film, perhaps more than any of the others in the franchise, you mentioned the Janet and Jamie Lee moment. This movie is about moments. It's about moments. And, and because of the way that they marketed it, it was really hinged on nostalgia. It was really reliant on the fan base. They were saying, we you know, this is a film for you. <laughs> this isn't just a general consumption type film. Like we know that you know what you know about the original movie. <laughs> you come in to see our new movie, right? and so we're sitting there in the theater, and it was. I, I think it's a wonderful film, front to back. I think it's thoroughly entertaining. I love Jamie Lee's character in it. I love what they did with her in it. Uh, the the moment, the moment outside of Jamie Lee and Janet, which was also awesome especially when the psycho music cues in the background <laughs> yeah that was pretty awesome <laughs> and we can touch on the score in a second here because yeah. that's one of the sad stories about this movie yeah. again at the hands of dimension but we'll get to uh. that in a second but the moment is when jamie lee drops the keys she's at the gate she closes the door slams it shut stands up looks out that portal window and who's staring right, right. 
for the first time in decades. They're face-to-face. And that moment in this theater in Chicago, full of even journalists, the majority of the people there were journalists, applause. Wow. That's cool. And I, had, I have never had that moment in a, in a theater. It, it, it still gives me goosebumps to think about it. I mean, it was just like, this is a moment. This film gets, they get it. Kevin Williamson, fan. He absolutely gets it. Steve Miner, obviously, fighting the Oh, yeah. Yeah. Talk about his lineage in the Halloween and the horror genre. He totally gets it, too. So, um, loved it seeing it in the theater. I still think it holds up over time. I like that it was Jamie's moment. I, I expected it to be that in reading about it. I, I fully anticipated it being more about Jamie than anything else and focused on the character of Lori having her come up and against Michaels. I, I called the ending as soon as you walked out of the theater. <laughs> I said to my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, it's the, he's the fucking paramedic. Oh, no, he, really? He, he, I guarantee I called him. And then Resurrection came out, and I was like, bah! Nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. One of the rare times I have. Boom, 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 so boom, that boom, was a little boom, bit telegraphed boom. in my mind. But still, it's, it, that's, again, we talk about moments. Mm-hmm. That was a moment, too. Michael seemingly definitively killed off. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's not burned. He's not down a well. He's not whatever. He's, <laughs> he's cut up. He's, yeah. Well, you mentioned... And it, and it, you, you mentioned the uh, no, that's okay. You mentioned uh, that kind of that shared experience you had in the theater, and the fact, and I don't know if it's necessarily nostalgia that you know you pine for that, but man, a good horror movie in a theater with a good crowd like that, yeah. you cannot compare that experience, and especially when they're all feeling that vibe, and the fact they all applauded when that moment right. happened, that would have been gold. That's wonderful. That's uh, like you even. Yeah, you even telling me that. I was like, oh, that's... Mm-hmm. I, I got goosebumps yeah. talking about it, you know? Um, I really liked this one. I did yeah. see this one in the theater. And again, I liked the fact that they went back to Lori and they, they let her address her issues because she's suffering some severe PTSD in yeah, this film. she's dealing with some shit. Where there's, this, there's certain elements where she's looking in the mirror and she sees Michael. And then, you know, she's, she's telling herself, it's not Michael, close your eyes, open them, and he's gone. And you get those great shots when... She closes her eyes, she opens them back up, and he's not gone. He's still there. That, to me, that was a good yeah. callback. Oh, yeah. Just that menace he creates, because he is just lingering in the background, yeah. just being that menacing figure. And this one also has a lower body count than some of the other films. Um, Significantly so, actually. If I remember, there are three or four, maybe, people killed in this one, yeah. and a few of them off screen as well, which I kind of appreciated i thought that was a nice almost kind of harkened back to the first one right because we had gotten to the point where there were some pretty over-the-top kills in some of the other uh parts of the franchise um but you've got that great showdown at the end and that to me what this film is about the fact that she almost turns the table on him and starts hunting him down yeah in the end which i was like holy shit like this is amazing like this is what i wanted to see this is what i came to see and you mentioned justin that you know you had so many fans of the film involved in this and i think they knew what the fans wanted you know you wanted your moments with the shape Mm -hmm. you wanted your moments with laurie and man when they came together yeah fucking a so much fun and and also nancy stevens who was rick rosenthal's wife who directed halloween 2 nancy was the nurse and i mean so she comes back as loomis's nurse that's right carrying everything forward from before. Loomis, of course, had already passed, or uh, mm-hmm. rather Pleasance had already passed by this point. And so they had a voice actor doing his voiceover at the beginning, sort of as him, bring him into this movie. 
because they knew fans were going to feel that that sort of vacant. lack of Loomis. Yeah, the Loomis shape yeah, gap. It's, it's it's an empty seat in the room, you know. And so they carried him over nicely, I think, and brought him into it at the beginning. And having her there helped soothe that in a way and carry it through. And it also shows again respect for what came before. Yes, it's we're direct, we're now directly referencing parts one and two. Mm-hmm. Yes, skipping four through six was a challenge for a lot of fans, but at the same time, why not? Well, and, that, and they did it, and they did it with a way that was classy and with respect. Yeah, yeah, it was very respectful. But I do feel that there was probably a segment of the fa- of the fans of the franchise that like, what the fuck? Where's Jamie? Yeah, Where's, yeah. yeah. Where, 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 why why did this happen? Why are you you know not giving? Why are you discounting that? You know. Right. But like you said, I think they really wanted to call back to the original, and I don't know if they necessarily thought there'd be more. The majority wouldn't mind versus the minority of the fans of four through six, but it, it worked. I mean, yeah. it really did. Yeah. Because, like we've mentioned before, they can maybe exist in their own universe. You know, you've got the the parallel universe of the four through six mm-hmm. coexisting with one, two, H two, and so forth. And yeah. I, to me, that yeah. works. Yeah. I'm I'm okay with that. Absolutely. I agree. 100%. Until we get, you know, where they cross paths and we have, uh, you know, where uh, the H two O Michael Myers takes on the uh, the Halloween four Michael Myers. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> who knows if that's going to ever happen? But um, I'm really it's kind of funny the fact that you called you saw through their ruse of a definitive ending for Michael Myers. Like no 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 that's not him that's not him. What are you kidding? What are you kidding? I didn't. I was like fuck yeah she killed him. Right me too. Closure for fucking Laurie Strode man and. Unfortunately, we didn't get that because Q uh, four years later we get Halloween Resurrection, which you know I'll defend. That movie was awful. <laughs> I'll defend a lot of Halloween movies, but man, I just this one. No, that movie is awful. It deserves all the hate that three gets. And I think it wasn't until this movie came out that people kind of redirected their hate. They're like, oh, no, forget three. Let's just trash Halloween Resurrection. But it's interesting because you had uh, Rick Rosenthal returning to the director's chair, and he had um, directed uh, part two. So you've got, you know, good lineage there with that one. But, man, it just... It just... Uh, it, it was it was bad. It was just a bad. It was the Blair Witch Halloween, basically. You yeah. know, it's just the found footage, the webcams. It's totally a film of its time, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I don't know if you can do that with Halloween. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good film in there somewhere, but just what is what? But just not the whole like, oh look, Shaky Camp, you know, and no, it's Busta Rhymes. And <laughs> well, uh, you meant you, there's the the elephant in the room. I like I love me some Busta. No, Rhymes. I love Busta Rhymes too. Woo ha! Got you all in check. But but to carry a movie like a Halloween movie, he might have been the wrong choice to take out Michael Myers with his kung fu. With yeah, with his Busta fu. Yeah, it. He he didn't have Michael Myers in check. No, <laughs> you know it, it was it was um, too contrived, and I it almost felt the whole movie almost felt pandering. To like, hey, look, we can do found footage stuff too. Hey, look, kids, we got one of your favorite rappers here. You know, it's like we're hip, we're cool. Check it out. You know, it was just like the plus the fact that they basically said f you to all the fans and killed off Laurie Strode. Yeah, and it, just it's just I I well, uh oh. Okay, that was that was Jamie's to 
speculation. Though. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure she was just like, at this point, I'm I, done. Yeah, I did my movie. It's good. Yeah. And which I can understand. Right. Because we don't yeah. technically need. I, but I instead, I maybe they couldn't. They, maybe they didn't have to kill her off, though. They could have just off. She's Pretend ha- it didn't happen. Yeah, she's some, she, she's know. living happily ever after. And Michael's just like, oh, well, you know, back to playing Christmas time. Yeah. Christmas <laughs> time. <laughs> but it's like done by, it's done by, fucking by John <laughs> Carpenter. Boom, 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 boom. Bum, bum. And you just get that Michael Myers with his head down, head walking, down walking slowly through the bushes. People out there, some of our listeners, if you can put a little <laughs> montage together like that, we would be forever grateful. <laughs> because that would be the one shining bright light that came out of Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> Justin, what did you think about Halloween Resurrection? I was caught up in its production. I was very excited about it. And I remember every little image that came out was... Uh, it was just like, oh my god, there's a Hatfield University. Like, <laughs> oh my god, I, I forgot about that. About every, every little thing, you know. Like they, they, I remember images of the cop cars being released. And I still have those saved on a CD-ROM. Like, I was totally into it. And at this time, no one knew what was going to happen next in the franchise. There were rumors of him going to space. Oh, in fact, on the cover of Fangoria magazine was Michael Myers' mask in space. In space? Holy shit. Oh. Yeah. So, like, it was that legit close to that happening. And the night he came to the moon. Lots of rumors swirling around about what direction it was going to take, what was going to happen, you know, who was going to be involved and all that. And when it came out, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I remember sitting in theaters and it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was as anticlimactic as H2O was climactic. Right. And H2O, H2O struggled in some ways too. Like one thing we haven't talked a lot about is the different versions of Michael throughout all these films mm-hmm. where part four is the clean faced white, you know, perfectly white mask with, uh, the, the night neatly pressed worker's outfit. And then part six or part five is the long neck and the big nose because Shanks got his nose broken and had to restructure his face and his mask that accommodated that. <laughs> and then part six, they brought, uh, George Wilbur back who, Unfortunately, had gained quite a bit of weight up until that time. And I remember that was the first thing that I thought in part six when I was sitting in theaters and I saw Michael walking down that corridor. I'm like, who is this dude? <laughs> who has the who has the paunch? Where is Mike? Is Michael like getting Jimmy Johns or, or, or is he getting Papa Johns every day? <laughs> the only and, thing he's killing is pizza. <laughs> and then H two O, there was the whole debacle with all the masks. Oh yeah. H two O talking about the mask that almost became the mask because uh, one of the great stories about party about H two O was John Carl Beekler, who is FX Maestro. I mean, the guy's an absolute genius. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he he's one of the guys who was who did H 4s effects and all that stuff. He was brought in his company to do the mask for Part Six, and or for H two O rather, and they showed up on set with truckload, as he described it, of masks that were exactly like the original Shatner mask. He, I mean, down to a T, he had the original mold, he had used that as reference, and he had made the perfect back to the original Michael Myers mask, and he says the producers vetoed it. Once he showed up, they said, nope, and that was the beginning of all the mask issues of H2O, because if you watch H2O, there's actually about four or five different incarnations of the mask throughout the whole film. Including a digital version of it, and one scene that's in a kitchen, 
Really? The lighting wasn't. Yeah, the lighting wasn't playing right. It's in the scene with CGI um, w- where the girl gets her foot caught mm-hmm. in uh-huh. the the dumbwaiter uh, or whatever it is. The, yeah, the dumbwaiter thing. It cuts back to a shot of Michael standing there, and it's an it's an animated mask. It's actually drawn over uh, Chris Durand, who was playing Michael at the time. Interesting. And, um, I'm gonna have to rewatch and look for that. Or maybe not Chris. Maybe Chris Resurrection. Anyway, regardless, it was, it was drawn on there. So H2O, they also had the big alien mask with the big eyes that were really wide on the sides. You mm-hmm. see some shots. And oh. if you look at there was there was a test reels done of the of the new mask and what they wanted to do with it. And you see Michael walking, sort of emerging from the shadows. And it's a fascinating thing to see five, you know, four or five, six different masks, and they all ended up in the film. But so by the time we get to Resurrection. Michael is he's almost all mythology mm-hmm. at this point his transition from him being the shape into him really just existing and sort of in the minds of everyone that was there that's what they're playing on is that he exists in everyone's fears they don't expect him to become real and the footage that you're seeing through the cameras and all that stuff it doesn't allow him to really be real in much of the film and that's an element of removal that I think fans weren't ready for. And I do think that, I, I agree, a product of its time in a lot of different ways. Very dated, the most dated of all the films in the franchise, in my opinion. But the, just the way that it ended up being handled and what came out after months of deliberation and discussion and pouring over this stuff in magazines and all the fans, like, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And then it's that. I just remember everyone just collectively going, uh, Just that fuck. groan. Christmas yeah. time. It's, it's... It, it, it was Halloween 3. Halloween 3 lost <laughs> the stake in the Halloween franchise heart, and, and Resurrection did too. Resurrection just kicked his franchise in the ass. Yeah, it was tough. Sort of knocked it down. It was tough to see as a Halloween fan. So we're going to leave it at that with Halloween Resurrection, because I don't want to you know give it any more life than it needs. But technically... That was the last Halloween within a certain canon because then we flash forward to 2007 and they decided to remake the movie, which, hey, you know what? My opinion with remakes is I don't care about them because they don't replace what is already there. Yeah. You know, I'm good with that. That's fine. Because in, in essence, you know, we got the thing. Got mm-hmm. the crazies. We yeah. You know, of, there are some great, a lot of Great, great remakes. But unfortunately, they, they gave the rings to Rob Zombie, who I'm a fan of. And Rob Zombie knows his horror. You know, that guy is a, a student of the game. But mm-hmm. sometimes the students don't necessarily translate into something that is manageable. Um, you know, the, the good God, House of a Thousand Corpses. I did not like that movie. I'm, I'm good with the, the Devil's Rejects. But yeah. I, I heard Rob Zombie at Halloween, and I'm like, no, that's... You know, Halloween is a subtle film. You know, there's there's nuance to it. Mm-hmm. With Rob Zombie, you get skull-fucking. <laughs> Eli Roth presents. Right. Um, it just To me, it just did not seem a match made in heaven. And I will say this, that I like what he attempted to do in the first part of the film in terms of giving Michael Myers the, the childhood thing. Because, and hear me out, because I li- I, for me, you can't humanize Michael Myers, the shape. Mm-hmm. He is just the shape. But if you're going to remake something, do something a little bit different. Yeah. And that's what I was okay with, because it was different. But it also really humanized 
Well, not necessarily. I mean, it redneckized, yeah. you know, uh, Michael Myers. I don't want to feel sorry for my killers. You know what I'm saying? Michael Myers is the shape. He's not some poor little white trash kid that daddy beat him and mama can't pay the bills. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, I did not like this movie. Well, it's because I, Rob Zombie loves the monsters. Rob, he identifies with the Jason, the Michael. But you know what? Some things like Michael Myers, I don't, don't need that much interesting backstory. I was fine with he's just pure evil. I was fine with Loomis's explanation of him. I was perfectly fine with that. I didn't need to see Michael Myers' Jerry Springer upbringing. <laughs> you know? That was unnecessary to me. Yeah. I, it just took me out of everything. I wanted to feel... And then I kind of almost felt sorry for him, and I was like, why oh, the fuck am I feeling sorry for Michael fucking Myers? I shouldn't be doing that. That's not in my... Shouldn't be coming in. I don't want that. I want... I don't want to say I want remorseless killing machines, but if you're going to be a remorseless killing machine, I don't need to know, oh, you're just a sad guy. You just need a hug, Michael Myers. You know what I'm saying? Love Hurts was playing while you were by yourself. I don't need that. So, yeah, I don't need to feel bad for that motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? And Rob Zombie, okay, yes, he knows a lot of good horror, and he does a lot of cool stuff with his videos and stuff. But here's the thing. I think Rob Zombie should kind of... This is my own personal opinion, and you know what? I got a lot of hate for this. I did not like his movies at all. I didn't like uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. I hated Lords of Salem. I did not like this movie, and I hated the last one. And I think he's he needs to stick to videos or short movies. You know, just something, just let's throw some crazy shit. After 15 minutes, we're done, you know? He's like circus peanuts. You know, you can eat a little bit, but then after like a whole bunch, you just want to fucking hang yourself. Or maybe just finally direct something that he himself did not write. Because that's the one thing that really takes me out of his films and is... And stop putting your fucking wife in everything. <laughs> Nepotism at its finest. Yeah, no, I remember seeing this one in the theater and walking out going, Ugh, I'm... I was kind of hyped, Were you? you know, because it was right after Devil's Rejects, and I'm thinking, okay, cool, he's getting better as a director, and then just... <clears throat> I did like uh, McDowell as Loomis, though. Yeah, no. He, he was good. And he brought back uh, Daniel Harris, yeah. playing the Annie character. Yes. Now, there's there's certain things that I think works really well, but man... then Overall, once, yeah. you can polish a turd, but you just wind up with shiny shit, man. <laughs> well, we've got Genius's take on this. Justin, what do you think about the Halloween remake? I like it. Ah, we have a defender. Excellent. Got, there's a lot of defenders. I mean, like I said, I'm probably in the minority of a lot of like. You know, as someone as someone who works daily with the franchise and interacting with the fans through Facebook and stuff like that, I can say you are in the majority. Ah, okay. I am. Okay. That that a lot that the, the disdain for these two films is greater than the praise for it. I think that tide is turning a little bit. Oh, do you I think th happens with with all time and nostalgia, and as people move away and move in and out of hyper fan conversation and into just film conversation, I think people find different things in movies over time. You know, throughout your life, that's one of the most magical aspects of cinema is that we grow up with it, we live with it, and we can visit it throughout different periods. And yeah. you know, a movie can mean something completely different to us one year than it does four years later. Right. And, yeah. So what works for you on this one? What's that? What works for you for uh, the Halloween remake? I'm going to start this by saying I like his second one better than his first. The second one's I very interesting. I love 
the second one. It is one of my all-time favorite horror films, and it's. Uh, but the, and then I like the first one as well. So here's what I want to encourage people to consider: with the remake, think of it in its own universe. Pull it out of the Halloween mythos. One through one and two, three, five to six, eight, and put it in a different drawer. Allow this film and its sequel to exist in their own universe. If they have Halloween on them, then I think they would be a lot more accepted by people. So what I want to encourage people to consider with Rob Zombie's Halloween films is that they exist on their own. I know it's hard for people to think of them outside of the terms of what came before, but here's my argument in this regard. People who think that Halloween in the franchise, I can't tell you how many times I heard that from people. Every time I'd post anything, because one of the big things with the Facebook page that I did is I'd celebrate benchmarks. When someone's birthday was, it was part of the franchise. When the movie came out, what its box office was, whatever it was. Every year was like, every day was something new to celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. Every time I brought up Halloween, or the Rob Zombie's Halloween, it became this shit fest. It became the most negative threat that you could imagine. And it's people who are just hurling hatred toward this film. And there's several things that I said consistently, and I stand by them to this day. The first one is, this movie did not crawl into your collection, remove your DVD of the original from your shelves, and abscond within the night. No one came in John Carpenter to go back and add CGI shots of Guido shooting first or any of that bullshit of the original film. This film didn't do anything to any film that came before it. In fact, I know it's hard to comprehend for some, but no film does that. Right. No film tarnishes anything that came before it unless you allow it to. So that's up to the viewer at that point. What I want to encourage people to consider is that Rob's two films exist on their own. Mm-hmm. Separate them from everything that came before. Eliminate expectation. Leave it at the door. Now, at that point, you're looking at Rob Zombie films. Do I hate the breakfast scene at the beginning of Halloween? I hate it with a passion that I can't even begin to describe. And I love Rob, and he's a super cool guy. And my conversations with him for the book which I have like four and a half hours of talk about Halloween, all things Halloween with him, is some of my most treasured moments from everything I did for that project. But, and and he is a true fan, an absolute fan. But I want to encourage you to consider this. If you hand a Doors song, I love the Doors, I'm gonna use that as an example. You hand a Doors song to Slipknot, Right? Mm-hmm. Not an unreasonable scenario. The Slipknot version of that song is going to piss the Doors fans off. No matter what the fuck they do, it's going to infuriate the Doors fans. But what the, So what the Doors fans are saying is, it's not this, it's not this, it's missing this, I don't need this. What the Slipknot fans are hearing, or what Slipknot is saying, but you handed us this thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and, we're, and, and we're just us. We can't not be us. And so Rob Zombie walks into this scenario with his palette. He was brought into it, obviously, as a trusted resource, as a director. The producers believed in that. 
he went about it like he would a Rob Zombie film. He had no reason to try to remake or recreate or retouch anything that came before. The whole reason for a remake is to do something different. And he did that. He offered a different version of the story after an absolutely asinine series of films that had come before. You have to consider, at this point in the franchise, you had psychic children, you had a cult controlling Michael, you had, I mean, the list of weird happenings throughout the Halloween franchise is a mile long. So when it gets to Rob Zombie, you think this movie ruined the franchise? I think that's absolute horseshit. And I don't think it's as bad a film as people think it is. And again, like I said earlier, I'm a, I'm a, I love the second one. The first one I like, the second one I love. But the first one, I think it just, over time, it's gaining acceptance with fans because I think people are, are allowing the emotions to sort of temper. And I think that they're allowing themselves to see it for what it is, which is a movie in its own right. And every movie deserves to be seen on its own, yeah. within its own spectrum, and within its own boundaries. Because movies don't exist to complement other movies. Every piece of film that you watch exists in its own space, and it deserves that kind of attention. And that's my biggest beef with the Halloween people who complain about this movie. It's not this. It's not that. Well, it shouldn't be. If right. you want that, put in the fucking original. Yeah, well, if you think that it needs to have more Jamie, put in the fucking part four. I mean, there's nobody telling you you need to watch this, first of all. Second of all, it doesn't do anything to what came before. And third, it's a different version of the mythology that you've already been so patiently following through so many twists and turns that you already have to be the most arguably understanding audience in all of it. <laughs> so, why, why, so why are you not open to this film? Mm-hmm. Why? So, genius, I throw that back to you then. Yeah. So, I, I just... I think my problem is, is I don't need Michael Myers' backstory. And like I said, I will admit that the Rob Zombie's Michael Myers, that giant of a fucker, is very intimidating and imposing. And Michael McDowell was an excellent cast as Loomis, in my opinion. I just don't feel like I needed that explanation of explanation of what drove him to kill. And I don't want. I didn't want to feel sorry for him. And but I understand what you're saying. So maybe. If I take if, if if I can make it like where he's not Michael Myers and let's say he's Vincent Briars, right? And just like okay, well we got a new killer on the scene. Let's see what that is. Maybe I might enjoy it more. But I just have this disdain for these movies. Maybe I need to see it through another lens. I think your issue stems from the fact that other people, younger people hold this so near and dear the way you do with the original Halloween that you almost see it as blasphemous that you I can't... Do, I, do, I do feel that... There's a disconnect there. I do feel you know. that a lot of the people who praise this movie pandered the original. And there, I do feel that is very blasphemous. Your own baggage is really does color your viewing of it. So this is one that will be interesting if we can have you approach it from a more objective point. Because I do definitely get what you mean, Justin, just in terms of... Maybe I just need to get really, really high. <laughs> it's just... <you> know, maybe. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So people make fun of what elements of this film. They make fun of the hillbilly elements. Mm-hmm. The sort of redneck stuff. It's, that really only comes into play in one scene. 
the, the, the scene that people have the hardest time with is a scene that I have a hard time with, and that's the kitchen table scene at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Outside of that, the fact that they're showing the backstory, I know a lot of people don't want that, but they were patient with it through part six. They, they listened to it through, I mean, the whole family thing is basically building on that. So all of the films from two on touched on that. Yeah. So if you, if you boil this film down to what it is, and, and I think you made a great point that I was going to make, earlier about the fact that Rob Zombie identifies with the monster mm -hmm. and that's something that I think really came into play in, in this film and I think it's something that's again generational for those of us the, the people who are making movies now are the fans who grew up loving the creature, loving the monster oh, yeah. loving yeah. the beastie, whatever it is and so we're making movies about them it's no longer fright because I, I remember you mentioned earlier watching Halloween and being concerned are, you know, are people going to be bored with it I remember watching Friday the 13th with a room full of teenagers once. And they're sitting there going, is this, and one girl even said, is this supposed to be scary? Oh, wow. And I'm like, ah, but, yeah, but I can't really get mad at you because I understand where you're coming from. Sure, it's sure. It's completely different now. And like, ah. And, and, and this is the same thing. Like, audiences today do demand, young audiences, mm -hmm. which the, the, the people who say this Rob's Halloween is their favorite, in the franchise or like their favorite slasher movie whatever it is they came into it probably at the same age when you and I were yep. discovering this stuff yep. yeah. very close to that so they were the age at the moment when this film was the one and you can't argue with that because you have different tastes than someone else it, it does not mean about I mean that, that doesn't mean that they are wrong for feeling that way and and so coming Looking at it as oh, you shouldn't have to share the backstory and all that. I get what you're saying because what we love about the original, as we all acknowledged earlier, is that there is no backstory. There's it's, it's vacant of any kind of motivation for Michael. But that's all blown out of the water in part two. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We we've been dealing with that for a long time as it is. What this film does is does what Halloween three, Halloween two tried to do, what Halloween three tried to do what Halloween 5 tried to do, and what Halloween 6 and H2O and Resurrection all tried to do, which was to take this mythology down a different road, find a new way to explore the family element, and to do it through the perspective that would please an audience of today that is used to films that are not laboriously paced, films that aren't slow like Friday the 13th, like those kids saying, is this supposed to be scary? They need something different, they need something more. And that's what this offered. And, and I don't think it, I don't think it falls short of, short on those terms. I, I think for in terms of satisfying that audience, for approaching it from that standpoint, for coming at things from a different angle, and offering something different, making Michael into the Frankenstein monster that he has <laughs> become in mythology culturally, he is right up there with Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and Jason are are on par with Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolf yeah, Man. yeah, absolutely, most definitely. Well, it's interesting too. Uh, what I what I really like about the film, though, is the first part because it is different. It gives more. It, it takes a different approach because if he just made it remade like a Gus Van Sant shot for shot, mm -hmm. why do that? You don't need to. Which is my issue with the second half of the film because it basically apes the first, like the second half of the first film, just with more blood and brutality. But see, I like the second part of the first film. Really? I mean, yeah. If I had to choose, if I had to choose which part I would rather see, I would rather get rid of the, like 
the whole weird bathroom scene and the mm-hmm. whole like mom killing herself to Leonard Skinner right. scene <laughs> and the whole that god awful breakfast scene like you said the and I would rather watch like the second half of that movie and then just like okay cool you're I'm good. cool with that. You know, I would be okay with that. I I'd still would be like, but the, get off my lawn, you damn kids, you know. But I I would be more okay with that. And well, then that that that's good because then you can either watch that second, you can fast forward right, right. to that second part and, and enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, and like everybody, like you said, everybody's own opinion is is a valid one, depending on horror, because we all have different tastes. Like for example, um, there's probably some movies that we've seen and we love where people are going to be like, "That's fucking stupid," and then vice versa. You know, there's probably movies that these kids today love, and we're like, "That's fucking stupid." And yeah. that's just it. We got to remember who are they making these films for? Right. They're, who is the director? Who's going to be, yeah. Who is the one that's going to go out with their disposable income? Mm-hmm. It's teenagers. Right. What do teenagers like? Well, they like fast paced, crazy, manic edits. Yeah. They're going to love that stuff and they're going to, and that's, and it's perfect. And yeah. Everybody, like, everybody has their own tastes yeah. when it comes and to And if horror. anything, though, you know, we get to hopefully ideally reverse engineer the, 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 the kids that are watching this and go, oh, you like this? Well, let's start looking back at the yeah. series. What it, what it inspired. Because you know what? Rob Zombie really likes this. So maybe you should too. <laughs> right. <laughs> When Kurt Cobain wears a shirt of the band Flipper, right. all of a sudden the Flipper, which is like oh, an shit. underground punk band, becomes fucking enormous. When they bring the Meat Puppets on to do the yeah. thing, none of these kids have heard of the fucking Meat Puppets. All of a sudden their new album is selling like platinum. The only so, reason I ever got into Public Enemy was because of Anthrax and Scott Ian. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that, that's a totally valid. I mean, all throughout history. And again, this goes back to the point I made four hours ago. <laughs> that Fans of the genre are fans of cinema. Yeah. They are fans of all of this, and they want as much as they can get. They are not satisfied with the current hit. They see something big, that whatever it is, they see something big or small, video or in theater, it, it's always going to lead them to other things. M- my point is, it's not even really important that they find the original Halloween. I don't think it's blasphemy that there are kids right. who, or people who only know these two films. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think that I would I would definitely argue that it's probably leading them on to other things, and that's really what matters. It doesn't yeah. matter that they find what we think is valuable. That's not the point. The point is that they find value in this, and that will lead them on to other things. And one of the great things about horror that I've written about even is that horror breeds creation. Horror breeds art. This is a genre where the fans love to get involved with the creative process. <laughs> and I think it ties yeah. into no, like wanting to know the nuts and bolts and all that about the how-tos and everything. It ties into that. But it's amazing how many people who are fans of this stuff try it on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that's, and that's unique to horror. And I think that the Halloween franchise has a lot to do with that. And a lot of it has to do with the simplicity. And here's a story for you. When I was running the... Uh, all the different sides of the media and things like that. That was just, again, one component of what I was doing for Trankus. One of the things that I initiated was a film, a fan film contest. And this ended up biting me in the ass big time. <laughs> at the time, I thought it was this brilliant idea. I got the approval for it. We proceeded. I threw out the word, create Halloween fan films, send them to me. I'm going to have a Halloween fan film festival online, and then your films will be seen by whoever... And then they may be included on a future that whoever, whichever one joins the most audience votes gets to be included on a future release, all this stuff. I had this grand plan in place. 
the stuff I was getting was incredible. The fans of these films are inspired by them. Mm -hmm. It's more than just sitting and jacking off to people getting their heads cut off. <laughs> right. This is something very real, and it strikes a very important chord within people who have any kind of a creative leaning. And that's what I love about the Halloween franchise. Even though Nightmare on Elm Street is the polar opposite in how outlandish and cartoonish and colorful, it exists in the world of dreams where anything can happen. Awesome. Mm -hmm. The Halloween films are the ones that are throwing people into overdrive creatively to create their own thing. The, the films that I was getting were absolutely incredible. Now, ultimately, the fan film thing got tanked by, uh, I will say, other entities that are involved with the franchise. And they that shall and not be named. We, we ended up having to pull the plug on it. And that was a hard day for me because all these people had worked so hard and I had seen so much that love sucked. and blood and sweat poured into these shorts that I was getting. I mean, it was just humbling, amazing. But it really illustrated to me the fact that these movies are different for a reason, and they strike something within people for a reason. Well, yeah, sure. And, and I was getting movies from teenagers on through adults. And so, even better. point being of all of this, all of this, when I did polls online, you would find that there are a lot of people who think Resurrection is the best film in the franchise. Sure, I can believe that. I can totally believe that. that. A lot of people think that Rob Zombie's Halloween is the best in the franchise. Yeah. It doesn't matter why they're showing up to the show. It just matters that they, they are. show up. Yeah. In this franchise, this is going to lead to the other films. I'll guarantee you, if that's important to you, people are probably going to find them. But ultimately, that doesn't even matter. What just matters is that people are showing up at all. Sure. Yeah, that's very, very, very true. Astute and, def and educational philosophies have to change over time yeah. we have to evolve otherwise we're just stuck in the past and we're not making any forward progress so i definitely yeah. i definitely agree with that and it, but it's these films they're so personal to us yeah. and they hold such a place in our heart our minds you know there are they are our youth yeah. you know we we were raised on these films that when people you know put on a put on a front on it we take we sometimes take it personally right you know and it's hard for it's hard to separate and that. i'm a passionate emotion dude oh very much and so. so like when i'm like oh Rob you know get off the kids but yeah you are 100 percent correct it's not the fact whether whatever movie is their favorite as long as they're seeing the movies yeah and I will say this, while we have the Skype gods on our on our side here, I do want to make a segue into Halloween 2 so we can kind of wrap things up, which we are going on quite a while. I think this is going to be a two-parter. Uh, but I will actually agree with you, Justin. I really like the sequel, the sequel to this one because it's really kind of batshit crazy. It, it, it's, it, there's just so many weird things going on with it. And this is a very brutal movie. And even the beginning, where you think he's going straight for a you know remake of Halloween Two with the hospital, it turns out to be a, a dream sequence. But it's an effective sequence. And the whole white horse thing—it's just—it's very, very. In oh, and we haven't mentioned Brad Dourif is the sh playing the sheriff in these two <laughs> films. Man, Rob Zombie can cast. No, like yeah, I will. I will give him. I will give Rob Zombie that. You can definitely tell that there's love of the old school, and the, the casting that he does is really, really, really good. Brad Dourif is, is amazing. Brad Dourif is the only other guy that I would say, on a contemporary basis, would I, I would watch in anything. Yeah, he is just imminently watchable, <laughs> and, 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 and he really comes to shine in part two. The overriding comment I would have a part two is that it's an absolutely gorgeous film. And for all the people who think 
that part one was just an outright slap in the face to everything that came before it. Part two's opening sequence in the hospital kind of, in a way, is everything you wanted Halloween 2 to... I mean, not, not everything you wanted Halloween 2 to be, but it's a... It also sort of pulls it into contemporary times. And I think it combines... The, the overall look of the film is so much more tied to, like, Halloween 5, in my mind, than anything that... It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful film. They use the flashbacks... The, the settings for things I mean it's just it's piece after piece throughout the entire movie it's just such a gorgeous film to look at and the character of Michael Myers is taken into completely different territory here oh yeah so we talk in the past we talk about him as a man we talk about him as sort of the epitome of evil we talk about him as sort of like the uber zombie unstoppable whatever in this movie he's kind of all those things but also there's a very human element involved with it and it's not human like the way the first film that Rob made was, where it was grounded in the ugliness of a bad domestic situation and thing. All that is in the past now. Now, we're almost spending the, well, well, we are spending the portion of the film in Michael's head. And that's something we had never seen before. Yeah, so it's definitely a first. Horror, yeah. horror is all recycled. Makes in the fucking. I've seen this a million times. Slasher films have done the same shit over and over again. Well, guess what? <laughs> he handed you something genuinely unique, respectful of the mythos, and absolutely gorgeous. And people shit all over it. And I think it's unfair. I think this film is his best film that he's made. And I think that it adds a lot to the Halloween franchise overall. And I think that the way it takes things after the fan reception of the first one is in a way that is unfairly dismissed because it, he put a lot into it despite what he was up against. Right. He had teams of producers working against him in this film. Yeah, and, there is a definitely a kind of a, a real big mythos in terms of the behind the scenes and all the troubles on there. Oh, it was... To hear him talk about it, it's unreal. Oh, really? Yeah. And at, at some point, to address the book... Um, that was on the tracks and I had a publisher we had everything set out and it was an official product and we ran into some licensing issues with it and a few other things that sort of stalled it and then it just completely fell off the tracks so the book is not going to happen as an official Halloween entity but the, all of the material will find a home at some point whether Good. it's in I've been toying around with the idea of a book just sort of about a film set around Halloween and including sort of making the Halloween franchise the, the skeleton on which everything else is built. But it will find its voice at some point. But I can't wait for these interviews to come out. And a, one, of the, one of the most important ones for me is Rob getting a chance to talk about Halloween too, because he hasn't had a chance to. Oh, that's... And, and I think it's a, it's, it's a cool movie. It has great cameos in it. If you're a WKRP fan, if you're a... <laughs> there's like... There's a lot to love in this movie, but just elementally, it is beautiful, atmospheric, brutal, violent, dark, and commanding, and it's brave. It's all the things that horror fans claim they want in a movie, but are completely intimidated by when they actually have it presented to them. When they're addressed with it, when yeah. they see it firsthand. Quick question, yeah. quick question before we start wrapping it up. Where would you like to see the franchise go? What would you like to see with Halloween with returns? Ha with Halloween, 
yeah. since that's coming out in Yeah, Apple. exactly. What would you like to see? I would love to see the story of Loomis told. Ooh, Ooh. yeah. I think that's the unsung hero of the franchise, and it's the most beloved character. It's the common thread throughout most of the films. And it's a guy that, as I said earlier, he, he has very little time to really be explored in any of the movies he's in. As much as we love him, we know so little about him. How incredible would it be to have a movie that follows him coming up as being a doctor, mm-hmm. meeting Michael Myers, and going through all the early goings on with Michael that convince him that Michael is something other than just another kid who's kind of fucked up. Like a psychological like, horror. Like, exactly. The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Who would you want to play Loomis? There's a great story to be told here. Absolutely. Uh, Loomis year one, if you will. Right. Totally, yeah. Who would you see as Loomis? Like a young Loomis. You know what's crazy? When I, and I had, and I had, I had <laughs> posed the same thing recently on another show, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago, and they asked me that. And at the time, I said Rob Cordry. Oh, wow. Man. That sounds like a totally left field answer. But he has the look, and there's something about him that tells him that he could play intensity really, right. really well. I could it's see that. Fun. Actually, yeah. I really like that. <laughs> that puts or Children's Hospital, children's hospital in a whole yeah. new light. <laughs> Tim Loomis is working at Children's Hospital. He's got the clown makeup on and everything. <laughs> or Robert England, I think, would be a natural. Oh, wow. He did a great Loomis in uh, Leslie Vernon. Oh, yeah. In the Rise of... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Behind the Mask. Right. Damn. Nice pull there, genius. Mm. Well, guys, this has been this has been an education, yeah, man. This has man. been wonderful. I cannot number one, Justin. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out to talk with us regarding this franchise. Um, again, yeah. remind our listeners where, where can, can they find, find you? you? On Facebook, just facebook.com slash Justin Bean B E A H N. If you just search, you can probably find it. And the same thing on Twitter, just my name. That's the best way to find me. I also have justinbeam.com which has um, some it's more of like kind of like a blog type thing that I'm kind of evolving right now but that's another resource to find and my Facebook and Twitter are linked from there as well perfect perfect well man again thank you for th- taking the time out to talk with us this has been a yeah. blast and then some yeah definitely man um, well, genius I guess until next time uh, thank you again my friend for oh, not a problem, co-hosting man. here uh, this is Greg D I'm Genius McGee. Reminding you it is never too late to get nerdy about nostalgia, and we will see you in your dreams. Bye.